Penguin Random House Audio presents Cherry by Nico Walker. Read for you by Jeremy Bob. Such use these times have got that none must beg but those that have young limbs to lavish fast. Thomas Nash, Summer's Last Will and Testament. And it feels like the whole wide world is raining down on you. Toby Keith, courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Author's Note This book is a work of fiction. These things did never happen. These people did never exist. Prologue Emily's gone to take a shower. The room's half dark and I'm getting dressed, looking for a shirt with no blood on it, not having any luck. The pants are fucked too, cigarette burns in the crotches, all heroin chic like I were famous already. I go downstairs, Lavinia pissed in the living room. There's a lake of piss. I say, Lavinia, goddamn. Yet low enough that she won't hear me, she's a good dog, just we've been some fucks about house training her. I get the paper towels and a bottle of spray. There's a pack of Pall Malls on the kitchen counter. I shake one loose and light it on the stove. I check the rigs in the cupboard. The rigs in the cupboard are all blood-used and crooked like instruments of torture, and there are two lengths of nylon in the cupboard and a box of Q-tips and a digital scale, two spoons with old cottons in them. The needles on the rigs are dull, but they'll have to do. Emily has to be at school by ten, and it'll be a close-run thing. There won't be time to buy new rigs till afterward. It's twenty to nine, but I think we'll make it. Black should be on time today, and he'll have something for us, so I'm not worried. I soak the piss up with the paper towels. I wipe the spot down with disinfectant, throw the used paper towels away. Black pulls up in the driveway, and I let him in the side door. He hands me a forty-five caliber pistol wrapped in a blue rag, and I say, Let me hold another gram. He says, okay, this'll make it 7.20, he says, no problem. I get the scale for him and he sets the weighing out a gram. I say, it was three light yesterday. He knows, but he doesn't say anything. That's how they do it, they short you. They know they shorted you and then they act like you're the one who's fucked up. Remember I called you about it? He remembers, but he's got to make things stupid because he's a dope boy. I say, come on, don't be fucked up. You said I owe you money for it like it was right, and it isn't like I'm not going to have you together real soon. He says, okay. I go to the stairs and call up to Emily. Hey, sweetheart, Black's here. Come down and do some of this dope with me. She says she'll be down in a second. I split the heroin up and set out some clean spoons, one for me, one for my best girl. I fill a glass with water and draw some out with a rig. I press the water out hard to break up any blood clots in the needle. I draw some more water out and add the water to the spoon. 
I hear Emily on the stairs, and I stir the heroin up with the water and go over to the stove. Emily says hi to Black. Black says hi. I say to Emily, that's you over there on the counter. She says, thank you, baby. I turn the burner on low and cook the shot on the flame till the shot starts to hiss a little. Then I take it off. Emily's rolled up a bit of cotton for me. She knows I'm in a hurry. Her hair is still wet. I take the cotton and drop it into the spoon. The cotton turns dark and swells. I draw the shot through the cotton and flick the air out of the rig. What's left in the rig looks pretty dark. She says, are you doing all yours right now? Uh-huh. Are you sure that's wise, baby? It'll be all right. If I can't get more real soon, then I don't see as it'll matter. It hurts a little extra when the needle's dull like this. It can make it hard to hit a vein, but I hit a vein no problem, and this is a good omen. It's going to be a lucky day. I shoot it. The taste comes on first, then the rush starts. And it's all about right, the warmth bleeding down through me, till the taste comes on stronger than usual, so strong it's sickening. And I figure it out. How I was always dead, my ears ringing. I'm on the kitchen floor and my balls are cold. Emily's over me. Come on. I lift my head, I look at Emily, I look at Black. Black is backed against the counter. I want to laugh in his face, but I can't. Emily's hands are cold. Talk to me. My pants are undone and there are ice cubes in my underwear. Did you put ice cubes in my underwear? I thought you were going to die, she says. Oh, day's still young. And I see she's about to cry. I say, I'm sorry, I was only kidding. It was good of you to do that. There's no reason for you to be embarrassed. You did a good job. You fucking piece of shit. Goddamn, lady, what do you want from me? I get up off the floor and I go to the sink and start digging the ice cubes out of my underwear. My cock can be seen. It's cold, not making a good show of it. If I'd have known this was going to happen, I'd have cut my pubic hair. Black exits the kitchen. Are you okay? I'm fine. Do yours, babe. We're going to have to get you to school and it's almost nine. I pick the ice trays up from off the floor. There are three different kinds of ice trays, green, blue, and white. I fill them all up in the sink and put them back in the freezer. I feel bad about the dog sometimes. We had said we'll get a dog and we won't be dope fiends anymore, so we got the dog, but we stayed dope fiends, and now we're dope fiends with a dog. Black is in the living room. I draw a picture for him. This is Lancashire. This is Hampshire. This is Coventry. I'll park here up past the stop sign up past where it's one way. You pick me up and take me over to Lancashire. Stop a couple buildings back from the corner and let me out. Then drive to the parking lot behind this storefront. Wait for me there. I'll be in and out real quick and I'll come around through here. Then all you'll have to do is drive me up to where I parked and let me out and that'll be that. We'll meet back here, split the money up, yada, yada, yada. Sounds good? Yeah, sounds good. So you're up for it, then? Yeah. All right. Just give me a second, we'll go. Emily asked to teach a class at ten. She's in the kitchen, feeling better now. I say, 
I'm heading out. I'll be back in a minute, she says. Be careful. I say I'll be careful. We live on a street of red and white houses where we don't belong, Emily and I. But we're happy enough, though we're often sad because we feel like we're losing everything. Sometimes she gets to carrying on real loud and screaming at me about shit like I can help it. And I have to say to her, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are you fucking crazy? Why are you making all this noise like you're being murdered? Are you being murdered? Am I murdering you? The neighbors will think I'm murdering you and they'll call the fucking police and the police will come over here and they'll see me and they'll say, this guy looks like the one's been doing all these fucking robberies and then I'll go to fucking prison and you'll feel terrible. And sometimes she says she's sorry. Or sometimes she doesn't say anything or sometimes she punches me in the neck and I'll say, ah, shit, baby, why'd you punch me in the neck? And she'll run upstairs and lock herself in the bathroom and not come out for hours while I'm downstairs crying my eyes out over her. I love her so much it feels like dying every time she does that. She's a beauty, and I tell her so all the time. I think she'd do anything for me. I get in the car and back out into the street. I'm behind Black at the light. I don't especially like Black because he's always on some bullshit. Still, he's all right as far as dope boys go. All his brothers are in jail. The arrow's green and black makes a left. I follow him and pass him going up cedar. The morning is overcast, but it's bright nonetheless. A bright overcast morning in just spring. And maybe it will stay this way forever. It would be nice, but it's a childish thing to wish for. I go past South Taylor, past the pharmacy, past the abandoned KFC, past the Wendy's, past the high school, past the movies, past Lee Road, another pharmacy, more houses, and I'm 25 years old and I don't understand what it is that people do. It's as if all this were built on nothing and nothing were holding this together. And then I hear people talk and that just makes things worse. I didn't make the light at Meadowbrook. I turn right at Coventry and follow it down to Hampshire and turn left. Here the street signs are painted to look like they've been tie-dyed. I used to live here before they did that. Then I couldn't anymore. It was like finding out you'd had some shit on your face the whole time you'd been talking. I go up Hampshire where it's one way and the brick apartment buildings on either side. Some of the apartments have balconies and the trees are nice. I don't understand them either, but I like them. I think I'd like them all. I'd have to be a pretty fucked up tree in order for me not to like it. The lane is two ways with houses on either side after the stop. Some of the houses are duplexes, some are single family homes, and they all look nice. And there are more trees and bigger ones. I turn around in the street and park at the curb. Black pulls up and I get into his car. He cuts over and turns left onto Lancashire. He drives down and stops a little ways back from the corner. There is nothing more left to do now. Somewhere along the way, I got into this, and it's become a habit with me. One thing leads to another, leads to another. Things get better, they get worse. Then one day, you're all the way thrown out before you ever knew it was that serious. And you might be crazy. And you might have a gun, but even then, 
it's usually no big deal. I have the door open and the car chimes. I'll be quick, so you might as well start now. You know where you're going, right? Yeah. Just make the first left three times, and you can't go wrong. Yeah. Are you sure you want to do this because you don't look like you do? It isn't too late to change your mind. I'm good. Okay. I'll meet you in the parking lot in about two minutes, give or take. Please be there. He says, I got this. Too easy, right? Too easy. I'm on the sidewalk. I'm an Indian's hat and a red scarf. I'm a blue hoodie and a white button-down shirt, some jeans, white Adidas, nothing out of the ordinary. The gun is in my waist. I pull the scarf up before I go by the ATMs, and the scarf covers the lower half of my face. It's a little late for it to do any good. I've been at this a while now, and it's no secret what my face looks like. And here's a guy walking out, and I'm at the door going in, and I'm not worried. I'm through the door, and I have the gun out so everybody can see. No alarms! I'm a wanted man! They'll kill me! I'm only kidding around, and I think everybody knows as much, but this is nevertheless a holdup, and I'll need some money before I'll leave. I walk to the counter with the gun down now so it's pointed at the floor. There's no sense in making a big deal out of this. One thing about holding up banks is... You're mostly robbing women, so you don't ever want to be rude. About 80% of the time, so long as you're not rude, the women don't mind when you hold up the bank. Probably it breaks up the monotony for them. Of course, there are exceptions. About 20% have a bad outlook. Like there is one lady who looked like Janet Reno, wouldn't come off a cent more than 1800 She'd have seen everybody dead before she'd have come off another cent. She actually thought the bank was right. This was a fanatic. Usually, the tellers are pretty cool. You give them a note or tell them you're there to do a robbery and they go in the cash drawers and lay the money on the counter and you take it and you leave. And that's all there is to it. Really, it's very civilized. It's like a quiet joke you've shared with them. I say joke because in my case, I don't imagine there was ever one to believe I'd do anything serious if push came to shove though I do make it a point to try and at least look a little deranged because I don't want anyone getting in trouble on account of me. I have a lot of sadness in the face to make up for, so I have to make faces like I'm crazy or else people will think I'm a pussy. The risk you run is that sometimes people think you're a crazy pussy, but I have to do what I can. Otherwise, her manager might say to her, why'd you give that pussy the money? You're fired. And she goes home and tells the kids there isn't going to be any Christmas. It doesn't matter. Here is a teller. I say to her, it's nothing personal. And do you know we recognize each other? There was another robbery on the west side, Lakewood, maybe a month ago. The days run together. I robbed the other teller, but she was there too. It was funny how it happened. The other teller laid 1400 on the counter and said it was all she had. I remember the lie in her voice and thinking, this poor woman thinks I'm retarded. But then what did I care? She was pretty, and it wasn't like I wanted everything. I only ever wanted what was enough for now. So now I'm robbing this teller, and we've recognized each other, and it isn't a big deal. I don't think she's against me. I think maybe we're the same age. She's pale as I am. 
and her hair is dark, her eyes are blue with flecks of gold in them, and I could be in love with her if things had been different, and then maybe we are somewhere. I say, I'm sorry. It's okay. What's your name? Vanessa. I'm sorry, Vanessa. What's your name? You're funny, Vanessa. She empties out the cash drawers quickly, which is good as I'm not trying to hang out. There's a police station not a quarter mile from here. I take the stacks of money off the counter and shove them into my pockets. It looked all right. It doesn't matter. It isn't ever very much. It's like smash and grab, like hit and run. The important thing is to get away. The important thing is to run fast. I slam through the doors going out and around the corner, go past the ATMs, but I don't run back up the street. I turn and run behind the bank, past the dumpster, past the place where I used to live upstairs, then down the steps and back of the almost vegetarian restaurant to the chain-link fence, and the parking lot is there, but I don't see black. And I'm not at all surprised, as this is typical fucking dope boy behavior. The important thing is, don't run. My car is a block away, and I think I can make it, so this isn't the end of the world. The parking lot's three sides where it's walls, and the wall's full of windows looking down on me. I take my hat off and put the gun in my hat. The gun's heavy on account of it's full of bullets. It's full of bullets because I can't imagine it being anything else. It's really too heavy to go carrying in a hat, but this arrangement will have to work as I have a ways to go, and I don't want the gun trying to de-pants me in the getaway. I walk down more steps that go into the parking lot, carrying my hat with the gun in my hat, with my hat in my left hand. There's no one else in the parking lot when I cross it. The gun in my hat still isn't well hidden. I take my scarf off while I'm walking, and I ball it up some and place it on top of the gun in my hat, and it's a little better. Still, there's the money sticking out of my pockets. I'll need to be careful that none falls out. I go left when I get to the sidewalk and I'm walking up Hampshire. They'll be coming up Mayfield, and if they catch me, I'm fucked. Sometimes I wonder if youth wasn't wasted on me. It's not that I'm dumb to the beauty of things. I take all the beautiful things to heart, and they fuck my heart till I about die from it. So it isn't that. It's just that something in me's always drawn me away. And it's the singular part of me, and I can't explain it. There's nobody out here except me and one other guy. He's on the same sidewalk as I am coming toward me from the other end of the block. We will meet eventually. I see he's dressed like an old-timer, and that's good. If he's old, then I doubt he gives a fuck about what I'm up to. The important thing is, don't act like you robbed a bank. Act like you have places to go and people to see. Act like you love the police. Act like you never did drugs. Act like you love America so much it's retarded. But don't act like you robbed a bank. And don't run. The important thing is, don't run. The siren's coming up Mayfield now, and the grass is like a teenage girl. And the stoops, the stoops are fucking wondrous. There's a fuckload of starlings gone the war over a big, wet, juicy bag of garbage. Look at them go. The big swinging dick starlings got all the other starlings scared. He'll be the one who gets the choicest garbage. This is the beauty of things, fucking my heart. I wish I could lie down in the grass and chill for a while, but of course this is impossible. 
The gun in my hat could be a little obvious, the money sticking out of all of my pockets, too, and the sirens telling everyone I'm a fucking scumbag. I bet they hope I'll try something so they can drink my blood and tell their women about it. I say good morning to the old-timer. He says good morning, and if he suspects me of wrongdoing, he is good enough not to mention it. We go about our business. I'm three-quarters there now. So, maybe I get away. And here come the sirens. Here come their fucking gangsters. The sirens screaming now, now turning. And I feel peaceful. Part One when life was just beginning, I saw you. You don't know how afraid I was you'd go away and leave me. And now I'll tell you what happened at the zoo. Edward Albee, The Zoo Story. Chapter One Emily used to wear a white ribbon around her throat and talk in breaths and murmurs, being nice as she was in a way so as you didn't know if she were a slut or just real down to earth. And from the start, I was dying to find out, but I thought I had a girlfriend, and I was shy. We were 18. We met at school. She worried about money, and I smoked $7 worth of cigarettes every day. She said she liked my sweater, said that's what she had noticed first, why she had wanted to talk to me. A gray cardigan, wool, three buttons from the gap. She called it an old sad bastard sweater, which was fine. She liked Modest Mouse, and she played Night on the Sun for me. She had me read two plays by Edward Albee. I thought Albee was a kinky fucker, and I wondered about her. Her eyes, green, were bright, merciful, sometimes given to melancholy, not entirely guileless. And I'd listened to her tell me about the abandoned factories and the cemetery where she'd grown up, the places where she'd skinned her knees, and her voice took me over. This is how you find the one to break your heart. In those days, I didn't know anything. I was going through a blotter's phase, and Madison Kowalski thought I was a bitch. I did it to myself, but she was still a cunt for it since she was supposed to be my girl. And she gave head to Mark Fuller in the Woodmere Olive Garden parking lot. It fucked me up when I found out, but I forgave her. Because I love you, I said. I love you as well, she said. Mark Fuller was good at lacrosse, that's what he was known for, and he had hair highlights. Maybe I should have had hair highlights too, but I didn't. And there were other girls who wanted to be with Mark Fuller so he could afford to force Madison Kowalski's head down on his dick till she choked on it. That's why she said to me, I appreciate that you don't force my head down. And it fucked me up when I thought about it, but I thought about it anyway. I often fucked myself up thinking, like how I used to think you were always supposed to be in love with the girl. I'd got a lot of bad advice. It was 2003. All indications were that things were coming to an end. 
Madison had gone out of town for school, gone to New Jersey to Rutgers. I didn't know why she had chosen the school she had. I didn't follow schools, but she was smart, or she had got good grades anyway. With me, it was different. I stayed on in the suburbs east of Cleveland, Ohio, where I had lived since I was ten. I was attending one of the local universities, the one with the Jesuits and a lot of kids who were fucks, a good school. I shouldn't have been there. Just my folks had enough money so that it was expected. It wasn't like we were especially fancy people or I was a legacy or whatever you're guessing at. More like with them, it was one of those vicarious sorts of things that can set a kid up for failure. How they were saying they'd have liked to have gone to college and fucked around reading about Sir Francis Bacon and all that shit, so why wasn't I happy? I didn't know. All I'd figured was the world was wrong, and I was in it. So I went to school because people'd said go to school, which was a mistake. Still, you don't ever get to choose. I sold drugs, but it wasn't like I was bad or anything. I wasn't bothering anybody. I didn't even eat meat. I had a job at the shoe store, another mistake I made. No interest whatsoever in shoes. I was marked for failure, but allow that I had tried. I went to work most days in the afternoons when I could have been doing better things, such as anything. We are talking six dollars an hour. I had a well-cultivated sense of shame, what kept me going. Didn't ever call in sick. I went to classes in the morning, sometimes missed classes. It was my shame again. My shame would keep me out of classes sometimes. I didn't ever miss English, though. Emily was in my English class. The class was shit, but I always went because Emily'd be there. And we'd sit next to one another. That's how we first got to talking. She was from Elba, New York, which was the same lake as Cleveland, same kind of town, only a little shittier. She was impressed that I had a job at the shoe store, impressed that I sold drugs. She said she'd been educated by nuns and had never gone to school with boys. She made it seem as if she knew nothing of boys to speak of. Turned out this wasn't so much true, but it's whatever. She was good, and I liked her. I liked her better than I liked Madison Kowalski. But I was still fucked up about Madison. I even showed Emily a picture of her. That's Madison, I said. She said, she's so pretty. Madison was pretty. There are countless women in the world. At times, it's more than I can bear to think about that there should be so many and they all start out the way they do, with all the brightness and their own invisible worlds and secret languages and what else they have, and that we ruin everything. And I have been mangled by vicious killers in my time, but I haven't ever doubted it was only that someone had killed them first. Someone like me. I don't want to tell lies, not any more than I have to anyway. The first thing I ever thought of Emily was I'd like to fuck that girl. So I was shit, but it was a matter of fate or something to that effect. What would bring us together, regardless if I ever deserved her. And if my life got fucked, it wasn't her fault. I should say that now. Chapter 2 I took the Greyhound to go see Madison at Rutgers. 
She was staying in the dorms and her bed was small for two people, so it was uncomfortable. But at least her roommate had gone home for the weekend. Madison didn't like her roommate. She said she was snotty. I asked why her roommate had gone home. She said the girl's grandmother had died. I said that was too bad. She said, screw her. I was to stay two nights. Madison took me to parties, but it was more like I followed her to parties. We went out with all her new girlfriends from the dorm. All the girls were best friends already. They clattered out into the night. They shouted at cars. Madison shouted at all the cars. The parties were shit. The kids didn't do drugs. They just drank beer. Random dudes knew Madison. She had been at Rutgers only a month, and they knew her. It was on account of Madison could dance like a real badass slut. That was one thing about her, and that was fine, and whatever, just it got a little awkward when you were the one who was there at the party with the girl who was on top of the bar fucking a spirit. It got so you were at a loss for things to do in the meantime. We had come to a frat house, to a basement done out in plywood, some kind of beer pong, sex dungeon, everything dismal as murder. They were playing a song that was popular then. It was a song about making all the females crawl on the floor and jizzing on the females and stuff. Madison couldn't help herself. I lost her somewhere. I went and stood off to the side of the room to wait for this to be over. All I had was a pitcher of natural ice, but it was cold, and I was low enough on money so that it tasted really good. Then Jesse came by. Jesse was one of Madison's girlfriends from the dorm. I will remember Jesse. Jesse had amazing tits, and she was nice to me. She looked at me all sad for a second, and then she said, Bad news, kid. Madison's playing you. The morning I was supposed to go back to Cleveland, we didn't have any condoms, and Madison was big on using them even though she was on the pill. I don't know what her problem was. I said to her, we don't really need stupid fucking condoms, do we? She said we did. She said there was a machine in the bathroom. That was good since all I had was change, but it was a girl's dorm, so it was a girl's bathroom. I said, can't you get it? She said, go get it. I was half-dressed, and I found the machine, but it was all sold out except for some shit called black velvets. I just wanted to get out of the girls' bathroom, so I bought one of those, and I went back to Madison's little bed where we started up again. It was time to put on the condom. The condom was black as licorice jelly beans. My thighs were pale. The condom was made out of the same stuff they used to make galoshes. It looked like I had a fake dick on. I didn't care if I fucked her or not. I was tired of fucking her. It was always a big production. She needed condoms, mixed CDs, an overnight bag. One time I had gone over to her house. She'd said she was going to blow me, and she did, but she made me eat a bag of popcorn and watch an entire baseball game first. This can't be love, I thought. I ate her out for the last time. I rode the bus back to Cleveland, starving. Chapter 3 The shoe store was at the end of Promenade 3, next to the Dillard's. My boss was giving me a hard time because I'd worn flip-flops. This is a shoe store, he said. I knew he knew I was on acid. 
Then Johnny Carson walked in. He said, kid, I need your help. He needed a pair of white tennis shoes, all white and none of the jazzy designs on them either, nine and a half wide. I have a wide foot. I said I'd do what I could, but most all the shoes have the jazzy designs on them nowadays. He said he understood. Just do the best you can, he said. It took two hours, but I came through for him. I'd had trouble reading the boxes, that and I wasn't any good at colors. I kept grabbing my crotch real fast because I thought I'd pissed myself. I sensed an uneasiness in this customer. I wanted to tell him everything. I wanted to be clean. By the time it was over, it had been an ordeal. There were shoeboxes everywhere, tissue paper was everywhere, the remnants of despair and hesitation. He'd almost walked away, not once, not twice, but I had begged him not to go. I understand perfectly, I had said. I am like you. Now he was glad he'd stayed. He had the shoes he'd wanted, or something close to them. He was more complete. He said to me, let me tell you something, kid. You're going places. You stuck to the sale. You're going places. When work was over, I took the 32X and got off at South Belvoir and walked. It had been a warm day. Now the sun was setting. I saw the shadows of the birds in the hedges. I guessed sparrows. Lights were coming on in the houses, and I was slithering in the post-peak euphoria. I had a rubella song in my head, one of the William Wales, the Great Pink Hope. I said to myself I'd sing a little. I did. I sang. Said I could disappoint you with a smile. Found out that's true. After swimming forty miles, your ghost is my biggest fear. I've heard that it's nice in Greenland this time of year. I ran in to an electric eel. Tried to teach me about a scarlet wheel. I was going along like that while to the right of me the sky burned down, and I felt something. My heart was pressurized. I wanted desperately to be nice to someone. I called Madison. I said, I miss you. What are you doing? She said, Oh, gross. You sound fucked up. I actually am not. Then why do you sound like that? It's just because I miss you so much. What do you want? I want to talk to you. I can't talk right now. Why not? I have to go. Don't. Goodbye. Wait. What? I'm scared. She hung up. I'd made it to Fairmount. I went into Russo's to buy some more cigarettes, and I ran into some shaker kids I knew. They gave me Xanax. I had some ecstasies on me, so I passed a couple out and took one. Outside, it was dark. The shaker kids said they were going to a party at this girl Maggie's house. I went with them. It wasn't far. The house was on Inverness. A brick house. We walked up the driveway around the back and through a garden gate, and I saw Emily. She was standing under a trellis strung with lights, wearing a white summer dress, and she was laughing. She said, Is that you? I said it was. You know these people? Kind of. She said, Small world, huh? Yeah, so do you know Maggie, or? Holy shit, your pupils are huge. 
I'm on ecstasy. How is it? That's pretty good. I'm sorry I don't have any more. I'd give you some. She said that was okay. I already turned some down. This weird guy offered me some. He said I should pop the ecstasy in my butt. Those were his exact words. Pop it in my butt. Who was it? I'm going to knock him down. Don't. He was just lonely. It could have happened to anyone. It's kind of fucking disrespectful. That's just how some boys talk. Who is this motherfucker? I don't know. He's not here anymore. Please don't worry about it. I thought it was funny. I didn't mean to upset you. I'm sorry. It's just that that shit ain't fucking right. You know, this motherfucker talking to you like that. She took both my hands. Forget it. I said, I'm really glad you're here. Why is that? She said. Because I like you a lot. Shut up. No, I really do. Hmm. What? I was just thinking. Yeah? I was just thinking that you're shady. We walked back together, Emily and I, all the way along the tree lawns and with the headlights going by us. Neither one of us was wearing shoes. She hadn't worn shoes to the party, and I was carrying my flip-flops because I wanted her to think I was nice. You don't have to do that, she said. I said, I feel like I do. Look at you, she said. You are shady, aren't you? You've got me all wrong. We went like that, and we came to the room where we kissed for the first time where she looked away and said, Do whatever you want, man. We were awake in the morning. I had to be at work in two hours. Then the shoe store called and said I was fired. I said I understood, and I hung up and went back to bed. I said to Emily, There's been a change of plans. I just got fired. She said, Oh, fuck, I'm so sorry. No, it's all right, I said. It's a good thing. Now I don't have to go to work. Was that the revisionist fat man you told me about? It was his mother. Your boss had his mother fire you? Yeah. What a fucking pussy. Right? I told you he was no good, didn't I? What are you going to do? I don't know, but I'll think of something. Hey. Yeah? Thanks for taking my side on this whole me getting fired thing. You're a really nice lady. She smiled. I said, I think I adore you. Stop it. Did you see my bra? She bent over and felt around under the bed, and I was thinking, no one's ever had a better one of those. I reached for her hips. You're fucking beautiful. Mm, fuck, where did it go? You don't need it. Yes, I do. It's my best one. You're an angel. Help me find it. No, I won't. I'm sorry. Fuck you. You're killing me. God damn it. Come back, please. I'm fucking serious. Oh, yeah? She was gushing. Chapter 4 You'll have friends. Usually it's nothing. James Lightfoot was all right, though. He'd remember your birthday, did never start shit, strictly a pacifist. 
He had a lazy eye and half a heart, born that way. Wore his hair long, brown hair, lived at his mom's house. It had been a while since his mom had lived at his mom's house. Still, it was done up like a family place. There were pictures on the wall, showed James growing up year in and year out, school pictures, and the one eye, all the way back, fucking him up. Tuesday, he drove me to the bank. He'd just bought a $300 GTI, faded blue. I could have walked to the bank, but I thought well of James Lightfoot, and I thought well of his GTI, so I went for a ride with him. The sun was shining on us that day. We had burned a peach white owl with train wreck in it, and so we were high as fuck. Roy was with us. Roy painted houses, but he wasn't working that day. He was riding in the front seat. Roy was tall, black hair. I was riding in the back. James Lightfoot had a noise rock album going on the stereo. It was like TV static set to blast beats. I thought it wasn't possible that he could actually like the album. I thought maybe he was being full of shit about it, but it was his car. James Lightfoot was yelling at Roy. Roy's cousin Joe had been saying he would join the Marines, and James Lightfoot didn't want Joe to join the Marines, but Roy was more or less okay with it, and James was yelling at Roy about this. Now, earlier he had said that Roy needed to talk Joe out of joining the Marines. It is the obligation of your love, he had said. Your love for your cousin, whom we all love so much. And now he was yelling at him again about this shit with Joe and the Marines, and I couldn't hear what he was saying. But I saw James waving his arm around, and I couldn't help noticing that he looked helpless and that probably no one would ever listen to him as long as he lived. I had received a letter earlier that afternoon. The bank said I owed them money. It was a mistake. I was going to sort it out. James Lightfoot parked the car and Roy got out and put the seat forward so I could get out and I went into the bank and waited in line. I hadn't thought about how much I smelled like train wreck. One of my shoes was coming apart and I looked like my life was more fucked than it really was. But I was in earnest. I had a receipt and that was as good as the truth. I had their letter with me, and I had the receipt, and I was going to have the mistake sorted out. This wasn't going to be a problem. I said to the lady behind the counter, You guys sent me this overdraft notice, but it isn't right. I paid this off already. I showed her the receipt. The receipt was from the other day. I hadn't taken any money out since then. She typed me into her computer. This is a new overdraft, she said. But that's impossible. I haven't made a withdrawal since the last deposit I put $160 in. That deposit brought your account up to $10 credit, but there was an additional overdraft charge against your account that put you back into the negative. How could you charge me another overdraft fee after I'd paid it off? The deposit didn't clear in time. I paid it in cash right here. It didn't clear, sir. It was fucking cash. It didn't clear. I went outside, and the car was on fire. Smoke was pouring out from under the hood. James and Roy were watching it go. I walked over to where they were, and I stood beside them. I said to James, I'm sorry about your car. He asked me if I'd got my money back. I said I hadn't. We took what we could from the car, the tags, the CDs, what stereo equipment we could carry— we started walking to James's mom's house. 
Roy had some train wreck, and he packed it in a bowl and passed it to James. We said nothing. We hit the train wreck, and we felt like we were winning again. Emily kept leaving her hair ties in my bed, and I would give them back to her. One thing about Emily was her parents had divorced when she was 13. She was always saying how she thought love didn't really exist, how it was just pheromones playing tricks on people, and I was probably a dog and a liar. She told me about how she'd been the first one in her family to find out about her dad's affair. She'd been eavesdropping on the phone. I asked her why she'd been eavesdropping in the first place. She said, you're being a fucking jerk. I'm sorry, I said. I mean, that must have been awful. I confronted him about it, and he tried to buy me off. He said he would send me to volleyball camp if I promised not to tell my mom. God damn. I wanted to go to volleyball camp, she said. What did you do? I told my mom. Did you ever get to go to volleyball camp? No. She had a habit of disappearing. Sometimes I'd go looking for her. It wasn't always easy. She might be hard to find. I'd found her under a grate in the sidewalk before. I asked her how she'd got down there. She said she didn't know. Let's go for a walk, I said. She said she'd have to think about it. Well, what you doing down there anyway, I asked. Studying. You been down there very long? Uh-huh. Are you hungry? She held something up to the light. I brought a little bag of Cheerios, she said. What do you do if it rains? Drown, I guess. And then there was rollerblades. She was hanging out with them more than I'd have liked. So I said to her, why's that fucking asshole always got those stupid rollerblades on? And she said that I was the fucking asshole, that they were just friends and they'd never done anything. He's so respectful, she said. I said, you don't actually believe that shit, do you? God knows what he's got planned. What about your girlfriend? She could be vicious like that. Madison found one of Emily's hair ties over Thanksgiving, but she didn't make a big deal out of it because there was everything, and we both knew that, so we were fine. You couldn't hurt Madison. She wasn't the type. She was cold-blooded. Really, she was a murderer. But then, for all her being a murderer, she could be lovely. Like, I remembered a day the past April, when I'd been on a head full of acid and she'd been fucking around on a trampoline. How it had been to see her like that, her light blue shirt spinning tracers in the air, her laughter panning in the treetops. How it had made me cry. But she wasn't the hill I was meant to die on. Chapter 5 Emily worked nights in the science building. She cleaned out the cages and killed the lab mice with the little guillotine that the scientists made her use. She cut the mice's heads off and squeezed the blood out of their bodies. She didn't like it, but she figured the mice were doomed anyway and she needed the money. Her dad was some kind of special dentist, and he made enough money to see to it that she wasn't ever going to get much help from the financial aid people. But he didn't give her any of his money, and her mom wasn't any help, so Emily'd do shit like walk an extra half mile in the fucking rain on account of Mark's, sold popcorn and diet soda a few cents cheaper than Russo's did. 
She was doing shit like that while I was off doing whatever I wanted because I was a soft kid and my parents gave me everything I needed. And I could make up for whatever I didn't need by selling drugs to the kids at school, which was an easy thing to do. Emily half thought I was a dirtbag, but then she was kind of into that, so it was okay. All the same, she liked to make a point of telling me she didn't trust me in the least, and when I'd try and say something nice to her, she had a tendency to laugh in my face. She couldn't help that, though. She was a tough girl. It went like that, and our first semester was over. Emily was going home to Elba for the winter break, and she had come over. She was lying on my bed. We weren't doing anything but waiting to say goodbye, and I was just looking at her and how her body was so light and delicate, her expression all composed and enigmatic, and I knew that the girl could take my life if she ever felt like it, yet all I could think was that I never wanted her to come to any harm. And like a fucking idiot, I said, I love you. The words had come out on their own volition, so I must have meant them. Now she was looking dead at me, not saying anything. Then after a little while, I don't know how long because time had stopped, she said, Thank you. And that was it. She left. I wouldn't see her again till mid-January when school started up again. And the whole time she was gone, I was thinking, She loves you. Chapter 6 can you look back to when you met the one you loved the most and remember exactly how it was? Not as in where you were, what she was wearing, or what you ate for lunch that day, but rather as in what it was you saw in her that made you say, yes, this is what I came here for. I could say some dumb shit, but I really don't know. I liked the way she cussed. She cussed with great beauty. And her body... She was the best fuck. She really fucked you, or she really let you fuck her. She didn't hold back. She always gave you everything, and she wasn't ever fake about it. The way she smiled when she was nervous. I don't know what she saw in me. When we first were together, we used to hook up in this empty chapel at school, and there was this altar. On the wall behind the altar were these ornaments. The ornaments were stick figures depicting the stations of the cross, metallic stick Jesuses hossing the crosses around. Sometimes Jesus would have the cross about upright. In other places, he'd be about collapsed under its weight. I said to Emily that it looked like a man suffering an accident while setting up a basketball hoop, and she laughed like she'd die laughing. <laughs> Maybe that was it. The day I met her, we went for a walk after class and we ended up in her dorm room. We talked for a while there and then, for whatever reason, I got to crying. Like really bawling my fucking eyes out crying. I said I didn't want to live because I'd already seen everything that was going to happen and it was a nightmare. Something like that. And she was really sweet to me. I don't think there was ever anyone who felt more compassion for weak motherfuckers. Chapter 7 And it was January, and Emily was back. She was having me watch a movie with her. Her mother had given her a $20 Best Buy gift card for Christmas, and she'd bought this movie on DVD with it. 
It was her favorite movie, she said. The movie was about different people who had all these intricate experiences of profound sadness and some of the people free-based orchids. And there were car accidents. We were in this room at school that had a TV and a sofa in it, and there was a microwave, too, but the room wasn't bigger than a very large closet. It didn't seem like anyone ever came here. It was a room you wouldn't know about. Emily had a gift for finding rooms you wouldn't know about. I checked my phone and I saw I had a voicemail. No one had tried calling. There was just a voicemail somehow. I listened to it. It was Madison Kowalski getting fucked in the voicemail. And there was a guy saying, Madison's so hot, Madison's so hot, Madison's so hot. It sounded like he was wearing wraparound sunglasses. Then Madison took the phone. And you're just mad, she said, because you can't have it. I said to Emily, you gotta hear this shit. I queued up the voicemail for her. She listened to it. Holy shit, she said. Such a bitch. Baby, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you had to be with her. I told you it didn't matter. The chick is a fucking cunt. She always was. I just didn't know any better. Emily got quiet. What's wrong? She looked away. I said, what's the matter? What did I do? I hope you never say that I'm a cunt. Of course I'm never going to say you're a cunt. I love you. That's what I've been trying to tell you. I love you too. And we were on each other. I started working on her belt. She said, wait, I'm on my period. I said I didn't care. She said, fuck it. No, wait. What? We can't. The sofa. I don't want to get blood on it. Fuck. You're right. Here, stand up, she said. She was being real serious about it. She went as far as she could and she caught her breath. Do whatever you have to do to come, she said. I brushed her hair back and tried to be nice about it and I came and she swallowed it. I kissed her chin. Her chin was wet. I said, thanks. And she said, don't mention it. And that's when we were in love. And I felt lucky for a while till it all got fucked up about a month later when she said she'd be leaving for good at the end of the semester. She wanted to go to school in Canada. That was what she said, and I thought it was just like a girl to go and say some shit like that. Chapter 8 I was fucking off school pretty bad, and I tried to balance that out by getting a job helping make the pizzas at Gerasene's. It was okay, so long as old man Gerasene wasn't there, but when he was, watch out. I just started when he caught me trying to learn how to throw the dough in the air and all that. He was hardly five feet tall with a slight frame, and he had his little gray suit on, so he looked like a puppet. I saw him, and I thought, oh, here comes a nice old man. He said, come on, let me see you do it. So I tried, but the dough didn't get much spin on it, and it came down in roughly the same shape as it had begun. There'd been an all-encompassing sadness in its trajectory. I didn't have the magic. The old guy went nuts on me. What the fuck was that, you cocksucker? You're all wrong, cocksucker. Do it again. This time, do it better. I did it again. Worse. No, fuck. Shit. No, no, no. Shit. Fuck. Do it again, cocksucker. I did it again. 
about as bad, and the old fuck pantomimed the series of simpering motions so as to insinuate that I threw dough like a queen. Then he wheeled around and said, Throw it high, high, so they can hear it in the dining room. I didn't understand what was happening. He said, What the fuck is the matter with you? Are you a man or what? Obviously, the pay wasn't good, but on the bright side, nobody apart from old man Jerasene seemed to mind if you took a fuckload of cigarette breaks, so that was good, and I spent a lot of time hanging out behind the restaurant, bullshitting. There was a young waiter who went to the same school I did. He was a skinny white kid like I was, except he smoked Newports and I smoked Winston's. He told me he was fucking one of Jerasene's granddaughters. Old man Jerasene had half a dozen daughters and granddaughters. They all drove Escalades or Denali's or whatever, and they liked soap operas and The Sopranos and shit like that. They all worked at the restaurant, not doing very much. I don't know if old man Jerasene had any sons or grandsons, but if he did, they didn't go to the restaurant. Anyway, the waiter told me how he was fucking Gabriella. Gabriella was 21. She had a pretty face, and she was stacked. She always wore fuck-me shoes, rain or shine. She seemed nice enough, but the waiter didn't give a shit one way or another. She's dumb as a rock, he said. I couldn't see how it mattered. She likes getting that ass stretched out, though, he said, and she buys me clothes. There was nothing worth saying, so I just looked up at the sky. Clearly, this guy had the magic. I went back inside, and there were a few tickets up, so I started in on throwing the dough again, and every time I threw the dough and it spread out in the air, I couldn't help thinking about Gabriella and her dilating asshole. I'd meant to drop out of school, but I took a five-milligram clonopin and drank half a forty of Old English and blacked out at the art museum, so I fucked off the deadline for dropping classes, and I ended up having to fail out. I got a letter saying I had to go see Father Whomever so he could tell me I was finished at the university, which he did, and he asked me if I'd ever traveled outside of the United States. I told him I'd been to Spain once. He said I was lucky. He'd been all of 60, the first time he ever got to go overseas, and here I was so young and already been to Spain. Then he asked me what I was going to do, and I told him I was probably going to mind my own goddamn business. By May, I had moved out of my parents' house and gone to live in a duplex on Murray Hill with my friend Roy and his cousin Joe and whoever else happened to be there, primarily James Lightfoot. Roy was a big Irish kid, and he wore the same fucked-up sport coat every day and drank 40s and rolled cigarettes with pipe tobacco. Joe was a pretty little wop. He couldn't not get laid all the time. It was really something. He was adopted. That's how he was Roy's cousin. He was the toughest one of the three of us. He was tough as shit. We used to beat the shit out of each other to prove how tough we were, so that's how we knew. Joe painted houses with Roy, and they actually made okay money, but then Joe signed up with the Marines, so he'd be done painting houses for a while. He was leaving for Paris Island in a few weeks. Roy did never join the Marines, but he did call up Jerasenes for me and lied and told them I'd broken my arm skateboarding at Kane Park. They said that was fine, and he got me hired at a restaurant on Mayfield, a nice place with two big dining rooms, high coffered ceilings, and one toilet. The owner was a dick, but not too bad, and all the waitresses were gorgeous and you could make money there. 
They had these Turkish guys working in the kitchen who'd pull a knife on you over nothing, so you felt like you were really alive. The manager started me off bussing tables, but I didn't have enough personality for it and my shoes were all wrong, so he stuck me making salads. Emily was leaving in three days. She was going home to Elba. She'd be in Montreal by the end of the summer. I had put together a picnic lunch, some fruit, some cold ravioli, some caprese salad, and some bottles of cheap red wine. The plan was that Emily and I would have a picnic down by the pond in back of the art museum. Instead, we had it in Roy's attic. We drank one of the bottles of wine, and we fucked there in the attic. She was above me, concentrating. I could tell she was concentrating because her jaw would go a little sideways when she concentrated like that, which was absolutely the most beautiful thing in the world. It was a clear day and the sun was going pretty well, so the attic became unbearably hot and we did eventually make it down to the pond where a good number of people, of all shapes and persuasions, were out enjoying the weather. Emily and I sat by the water and talked about all the things we thought we were going to do. I said I wouldn't go if she didn't go. She said, fuck you. And I guess I was wrong to try her like that. It was only that it had been such a good day and I thought most of the days would have been as good. I went into work at six. It was supposed to be a big night. The owner was throwing a party after we closed at twelve, and the salad station was being converted into an extra bar, and I'd get to serve drinks. I told Emily and Roy and Joe to be sure they came through so they could drink for free. They'd said they would come, and they did. I saw Roy and Joe first. They were talking to the owner. Joe was saying how in three weeks' time he'd be at basic training. The owner listened intently. He liked Joe because Joe looked like a TV Dago. He said, Paris Island. It's Marines, isn't it? Joe said, yeah. But that's a good way to go to heaven. I got Roy's attention. I asked him where Emily was. He said, she's around here somewhere. Okay, that doesn't really help me, but thanks. Gosh, look who's on his period. Man, what the fuck? What? Who the fuck is he? How the fuck should I know? He was standing real close to her, and she brought him with her, and she came over to the bar salad station. She said, hi. I looked at her. This is Benji, she said. Benji's from Ghana. He goes to Case. I said, what's up to Benji? He flashed a smile at me and just as quickly turned back to Emily. I know this great restaurant, he said. It's called Mi Aldea. The food is so good there, I must take you sometime. She said, mmm, that sounds good. I came around from behind the bar salad station, and I put my arm around Emily and kissed her on the top of her head. But I was drunk, and I accidentally dropped a lit cigarette into the hood of her sweatshirt. Benji said, watch out, he has dropped his cigarette in your hoodie. Get it out, man, she said to me. I didn't understand at first. I got the cigarette out, but not before it had burned a hole through the material. Is it okay? She asked. It's fine, I said. Can we please talk somewhere? What? Let's go over here. You're being an asshole. Shh. Listen to me. Nobody thinks the food at Mi Aldea is good. The only reason he wants to take you there is because they don't card, and he wants to get you drunk and fuck you in the ass. What the fuck is your problem, man? I couldn't say anything right. 
Roy came up. I said, what's up, Roy? He said, you want me to punch that guy in the dick? Uh, not yet. Emily said, I'm fucking done with this. She walked out in a hurry. Roy and Joe left after her. They said it'd probably be all right. I didn't know, but I had to stay where I was. I had to look after the bar salad station. And that's what I did. And I felt like shit. Around 1.30, the manager told me to shut it down. Then one of the real bartenders, a guy named Chris, said I should look after one of the patrons for him, a guy named Tommy. Tommy just got out of prison, he said. Tommy's a real stand-up guy. Tommy was drunk as fuck. I was supposed to help him to not throw up on anybody or goose a slut or whatever it was they thought he might do. Tommy had been in prison 20 years, which meant he'd gone away in the early 80s, which meant he'd been locked up longer than I'd been alive. He had big plastic eyeglasses and a gray bowl cut and a shiny red bowling jacket. He said everybody was full of shit and they were all a bunch of fakes. He meant some of the guys you would see in the area who acted like they were real Cosa Nostra motherfuckers. Tommy said all these guys like to talk the big game. But they don't have the balls to put a gun to the guy's head and blow his brains out. That's what he kept saying, the stuff about the brains. He'd start talking about this punk and that peckerhead and the other turkey, and he'd finish up by saying that they didn't have the balls to put a gun to the guy's head and blow his brains out. Then he got to asking me about what I did. I said I didn't do much, but I was going to join the army soon. Don't be a fool, he said. Those people don't give a shit about you. I said I already knew that. So what the fuck are you thinking? I don't know. I don't have any other ideas. But do you have the balls to put a gun to the guy's head and blow his brains out? I don't know. Ah, you'll be all right. The night was about over, and I said, Listen, Tommy, I've got to help close. If you need anything, let me know, all right? And I went around the place, pushing tables and chairs around, spraying things and wiping them off and sweeping and mopping. I was really moving because I needed to get out of there and I needed to see Emily. I got done, and I went outside, and there was Tommy, standing out on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant, looking like a lost child. Tommy, I said, you all right? Yeah, what are you doing? I'm all done. I'm about to walk home. Hey, you need a ride? I'll give you a ride. I can walk. I'm not even five minutes that way. Now, nah, come on. I'll give you a ride. All right. But hold on a second, because I'm going to go run over to the bakery and buy a cake. What's she buying a cake for? My girl, she's leaving town, and I want to buy her a cake. Don't waste your money. It'll just take a second. There was a 24-hour bakery across the street and up toward the hill a little ways. They didn't have any cakes to sell me, and I had to settle for a dozen cheesecake muffins, but they were impressive muffins, and I thought it was just as well. Tommy said, let's go. You ready or what? He was driving the blue Chevy Astro van that was parallel parked next to the restaurant. We hopped in, and Tommy fired up the engine. He ran into the car in front of us and backed into another car before he could get us into the lane. I glanced over and he looked like he was feeling real ill. All of a sudden he stopped the van and opened his door to retch. He retched for a minute, violently. When he was done retching, he leaned against the driver's seat. He was going, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
In the dome light, I saw that he had caught himself with a fair amount of the vomit. I said, Bad news, Tommy. You threw up on your sleeve. Tommy looked down and saw what he had done to the right sleeve of his shiny red bowling jacket. He went, Ah, rats. I said, Don't worry, Tommy. We could fix it. There was a paper grocery bag on the floor of the van. I tore it into napkin-esque shapes that Tommy could use to scrape the lion's share of the vomit off his sleeve. They didn't work like magic or anything, but they did all right. Tommy said, Close enough for rock and roll. And we resumed our drive up the street. We only had another ten houses to go, and we were there. Tommy ran over the curb for good measure. I thanked him for the ride and asked that he be careful getting home. He said he would be okay. I gave him one of the muffins, and I never saw him again. Emily was still awake when I got upstairs. She'd been drinking, and I joined her at that. I gave her the box of muffins and said I was sorry about earlier when I was being an asshole. I said I understood that she hadn't meant anything by bringing Benji around and that she was just a sweetheart who believed in diversity and developing countries and stuff like that and that she wanted friends. I said there was supposed to be a dozen muffins, but I had given one to Tommy and Tommy was a good man and he had needed to eat something. She said that it was all very nice of me and that I was forgiven. Then I saw that she was crying. I had never seen her cry before and I asked her what was wrong, and that just made her cry more. She said she didn't know what was wrong. It was a while before she stopped crying. I asked her if she was all right. She said she was all right. I said, this is fucking crazy, isn't it? She said, yeah, it is. And we laughed about it. And we fucked around. And we went to sleep. Part 2 Adventure Chapter 9 Staff Sergeant Kelly had the face like death, and the every other word out of his mouth was Joker. He had the black sweater and the green slacks, the patent leather shoes. A fuckload of piss cups was in his desk drawer. He said the latrine was at the end of the hallway. Go left out the door and follow it around, he said. You can't miss it. My piss was clean, so Kelly told me how his wife was a Korean. He told me how he drove a government car and got BAH and TRICARE. Made it sound real good. I had to show him I could do 20 push-ups and 20 sit-ups. Then he took me next door to the Bally Total Fitness so I could show him a mile on one of the treadmills. I was wearing Vans, Jeff Rowley's vegan shoes, and my pants kept trying to fall down, but I did okay. We went back to the Armed Forces Career Center, and I took a practice ASVAB so Kelly could be sure I wasn't a subnormal. He checked it over when I was done, and he said I'd score in the 85th percentile. He said I could have any MOS I wanted if I did as well on the real thing. I could tell he was excited. This was the first week of 2005, and for a while the news mostly had been about kids going off and getting themselves killed and maimed, so Kelly and his like were having a hard time getting enough kids to sign up. But there I was, and I was too easy. 
I'd made his day. We went to talk to his boss, Sergeant First Class Space, and Kelly said, Pardon me, sir, but I have a joker here, says he wants to be a 91 whiskey, says he's trying to go ASAP. All Space's teeth were gold, and he was one long and thin motherfucker. I hadn't known that people could be named Space. He said, Have a seat, Mr. 91 Whiskey. I told him the same shit I'd told Kelly, and Space agreed that I was going about things the right way. He said I'd made a smart choice because 91 W's had it made in the Army. Then he got on the phone, and when the other end picked up, he said, Hamburger, 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 and laughed like this was real funny. And for whatever reason, I wanted to say hamburger, 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 too, even though I knew he was laughing at me. Joe came and got me from Severance, and we went and got drunk with Roy. We made a big deal out of the drinking the way you will when you're young and you drink and a day's momentous. Joe was just back from Camp Lejeune, and he'd be in town for a few weeks before his reserve battalion left for Fort Irwin and then Iraq. And now I was enlisting in the Army because I'd been saying I would, so we thought we were hot shit. It was Tuesday night. We ended up at a bar on Mayfield. The place was dead, but we got to meet a knight of Columbus. He had a black leather jacket on and his hair quaffed like he was Frankie Avalon or Robert Blake or one of those guys. He looked to be in his fifties. He asked us what we were carrying on about and Roy explained it for him and he approved. He said, you know, I used to teach hand-to-hand -hand combat to the special forces guys down there at Camp Lee June. Joe said he'd just come from SOI there. What's SOI? School of Infantry? Yeah, I forgot. The Knight of Columbus liked Joe because Joe looked like a TV Dago, and so we had his company. As for the barmaid, she was in her late twenties. She had white blonde hair and a tan that cost money, and she was skinny except for she had a little pooch in the front that gave a false impression of her being some months pregnant. We had been there before, and we had seen her then. The pooch didn't change, and she'd always act stuck up like she was the one who served drinks to Ben Affleck or some fucking body. At first, I'd just assumed she was a cunt, but then I'd come to wonder if there wasn't a sadness in it. The Knight of Columbus had been showing us fighting moves, and now he wanted to buy us a round. That's how I saw that the barmaid wasn't shitty to him. She even called him Mr. Something or other, and I thought, there's something to be learned here. But before I could figure out what it was, the Knight of Columbus made a toast. I bet you make it home alive, Joe, he said. Your friend here I'm not so sure about. Salut! We drank the drinks. Roy said he was going to enlist in the Marines as a machine gunner. Everyone agreed it would be a fine thing for him to do. I said I had to go take a piss, so I did. I punched the bathroom mirror on accident when I was washing my hands. The mirror fell off the wall and took the sink with it. I didn't stay. It had been a tremendous fucking crash, and I needed to warn my friends. The barmaid was making for the wreckage. We gotta go, I said. I mean, like, we gotta go right fucking now. The barmaid was cussing in the bathroom, and we said goodbye to the Knight of Columbus. He said not to worry about the barmaid. That whore's had two abortions, he said. 
We didn't have far to run to get home, and we had a fist fight in the driveway till one of the neighbors said he'd come down and shoot us if we didn't be quiet and go to bed, so we went inside. I called Emily. I wanted her to tell me I was good, maybe thank me or something. But she had her mind made up to give me grief, and I shook my head because I didn't understand. I said, Dearest, I told you before that I was going to do this, and you didn't say anything then. She said, That's because I thought you were full of shit, baby. I went and saw my parents the following evening. They were doing all right. They thought the shit with the army was dumb, but they were doing all right. They just bought a house, a nice house with plenty of room. I wanted nothing to do with it. I said I was going Thursday to MEPS for a physical and some other tests, and if those went well, I'd be at basic in a couple weeks. Sergeant First Class Space had said I'd fill out a wish list of the duty stations I'd like to be assigned to in order of preference, and since practically everybody got one of their top three, I was more or less guaranteed to stay close to Ohio. So I'd be able to visit often, and the life insurance policy was good for $300,000 if I opted to pay for the kicker. My dad said, Are you sure there isn't anything else that you would rather do? I said I didn't know what else there was to do. My mom said, I don't see why you don't wish to continue with your studies. I said, What studies? I failed out of school eight months ago. You can always go back, she said. And I might, and if I do, the army will pay for it. Sergeant First Class Space said, Who the fuck is this son of a bitch? I'd like to speak to him. I said that couldn't happen. She said, Why not? I said it was something I was doing on my own. Thursday, I found out I was colorblind. It wouldn't be a problem, though, because 91W was one of the few MOSs you could hold in the Army while colorblind. Because you already know what color blood is, they said. There was a lot of standing in line, and our legs ached because we weren't used to it. They had us stripped down to our underwear and duck walk the circuit of a big room. The big room smelled like balls, unwashed, and feet, ditto, and open ass, regardless. And there was a lot of inadequacy to be seen in the big room. Fat kids, acne, acne on the face, acne on the body, skinny kids. I was a skinny kid. I wasn't strong. We looked like shit. We'd grown up on high-fructose corn syrup with plenty of television. Our bodies were full of pus, our brains skittered. They called us one by one into another room, a smaller room, wherein there was a man whose job it was to check everybody's asshole. He had you bend at the waist and spread your ass apart with your hands so he could get a good look at it, and when he had seen enough, he said, Okay. They took me. By three in the afternoon, I had signed a contract and I was sworn in. Roy came and got me from MEPS, and he drove me up to Elba so that I could stay with Emily my last two weeks as a civilian. Joe had come along for the ride. Snow was falling when we passed Erie. By the time we had passed the exit for Jamestown, it was all out night, and the traffic on 90 was bound up in a proper storm. We were boxed in by semis. They were all around us, rattling against the wind. Were one of them the jackknife? Were one of them to not see us and then change lanes, we'd have had a fair chance of death by machines out on the roadway. 
But we didn't worry about it. We had Roy's car, and we had cigarettes. We had heat and music, and all the way through the tolls outside Elba, we did never doubt that we were some of the ones who wouldn't be killed. It was ten o'clock when we got to Emily's. They dropped me off and turned the car around and went home. This was my first time seeing Emily in her hometown. All the last summer, she'd been saving up to go to school in Montreal. She'd worked a third shift six nights a week at a Walgreens, and she'd been living with her aunt, and her aunt was religious, so there had been no time or place for me then. I had gone to see her in Montreal just as soon as she'd moved there. That was late August, twenty hours worth of Greyhound each way, and it was worth it. To be alone with her in a strange city, the Paris of Canada, to only know each other, to smoke players with pictures of cancer or black heart on the packages, to stick our heads out onto the fire escape, to make dinner in her kitchenette, to drink liquor and have wild fucking arguments about different things, God, oasis, my insufferable arrogance, whatever she felt like. We would get to screaming at one another, then fuck and sleep like young wolves in a shoebox. It was like a dream. And like in dreams, I didn't get to stay, and neither did she. Something to do with money, she dropped out and moved back to Elba. She rented an apartment and got a job at a giant eagle. She was waiting for the spring semester to start up at the local school. It was strange with us, not fighting at all. Now and then she'd say she thought the army was a bad idea, but I didn't know as it was a good idea either. It was only something that was happening, so there was nothing to fight about. When she went to work, I'd do jumping jacks and read Kurt Vonnegut books and chain smoke. When she came home, we'd fuck and take naps, listen to the Lead Belly CD we'd bought at the borders down the street, drink gin. The girl loved gin. She'd drink gin and then she'd want to kiss you. It wasn't like I didn't know I was better off there, but what was done was done, and I wasn't supposed to stay. The days ran out, and she drove me back to Cleveland. They put the recruits up in a hotel downtown. I was in a room with a kid my age from Steubenville who had enlisted as a military policeman in the Ohio National Guard. He said when he came home from basic, he was going to wear his Class A uniform with his patches and his ribbons and take his fiancée out to dinner. I wished him luck. He wished me luck. Chapter 10 Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri The head shavers were civilians, a fat fuck and his women. The women had silver-blue permanents. There were two of them, and they were awful. So was the fat fuck. It wasn't enough for them that we had to pay them money for these haircuts that we were ordered to get. They talked shit to us, too. They cut a kid's head so it was bleeding pretty good, and he let on that he minded and they said he was a sissy. They wanted to know if he was from San Francisco. Then they cut another kid, and the blood was running down, and they thought it was funny. They didn't get bored of it. They had special vacuum clippers that sucked the hair up as they cut. The suction pulled the scalp up into the blades. That was how come they drew blood so much. The fat fuck and his women had to talk real loud so they could hear themselves over the sucking sounds. I wish death upon them. Then we got a hundred fucking shots. We got all our army stuff, uniforms, boots, helmets, shit like that. We took our papers with us everywhere. 
They signed our papers. This was in-processing. When we weren't in-processing, we sat in an auditorium and they taught us things. Left face, right face, the army song, whatever. When it was time to eat, we acted like the food was really bad, even though it wasn't that bad. One kid said, I'm a spook, that's counterintelligence. Another kid said, I'm an 11 Bravo. That was infantry. But he couldn't be an 11B because all the 11Bs went through at Fort Benning. Now we knew he was a liar. The group I came in was B1, as in Bravo 1. That night, another group came in, B2. We thought the B2s were decadent children. We said, these Bravo 2s are ate the fuck up. We said, they sure are. The B2s thought we were weird losers. The mutual enmity between B1s and B2s lasted three days. Then we were redistributed at random into three platoons called Alpha Company, and no one could remember who anyone was. The universal baldness made it difficult to recognize people. They packed us into cattle cars, and we rode up the hill to boot camp. It was a lot of yelling. They called us names like High Speed and Dick With Ears. Our hands were Dick Skinners, our mouths were Cock Holsters, our enemy was Haji. Our friends were Battle Buddies. It was real trashy. There were girls in our company. They couldn't do the exercises. We carried their equipment for them. It was a hassle. There were dudes who were fucked up, too, but nothing like the girls. The drill sergeants pretended they were real angry. They said not to come close to them because they could wig out and snap our necks. PTSD, they said. And a drill sergeant did choke a recruit. The kid was unconscious. He had choked the kid out. It wasn't because of PTSD, though. The drill sergeant had no combat patch. He hadn't ever been anywhere. He was full of shit. We had drill sergeants who had been to Iraq, and they were full of shit, too. They said they'd killed children over there. They said in Iraq there were children who tried to sneak up on American soldiers so as to blow them up with hand grenades. When it came to those types of situations, they said it's either you or the kid, so you had better kill the kid. One of the drill sergeants was an 88M, a truck driver. He said he had run over the hand grenade children with his truck. He said that was why he was crazy. I stayed out of the way most of the time, and so I didn't get fucked with much. Still, there was no avoiding it entirely. Like when I told Drill Sergeant Cordero I needed to trade my country captain chicken MRE for a vegetarian one because I was a vegetarian, Cordero got angry as fuck. He said, Why don't you eat meat, Private? Are you rich? He talked like a Chicano macho man Randy Savage. I said I wasn't rich. He said, I saw a show on TV. It said that people who don't eat meat have weak minds. They are easy to brainwash. That means that you are easy to brainwash. Yes, Drill Sergeant. One day I was shooting my rifle at some silhouettes on a practice range, and I was sucking because I couldn't see the silhouettes too well. The silhouettes on this range were light green, whereas normally they were something darker, black, I think. And Cordero was standing over me, losing his fucking mind. He said, Shoot the target, Private! What the fuck is the matter with you? I said, I'm having a hard time seeing the silhouettes, Drill Sergeant. Why can you not see the silhouettes? I'm colorblind, Drill Sergeant Red-Green. Well then maybe, since you are colorblind, you should not have joined the United States Army! He bent the brass cleaning rod he was holding on account of his hitting me on the head with it. 
but I wasn't hurt because I was wearing a helmet. I left the range. I had to be patted down. No press, no ammo! Drill Sergeant Cole punched me in the penis for no reason. You'd have that, though. You just had to remember it was all make-believe. The drill sergeants were just pretending to be drill sergeants. We were pretending to be soldiers. The Army was pretending to be the Army. The only thing I worried about was Emily. Dave from the Giant Eagle was going to try to fuck her. I'd met him two nights before I left Elba. Emily had invited him over after they got off of work. He'd been rude as shit to me. I knew what he was about. I'd said to Emily, that guy's going to try to fuck you. She said he wasn't like that. I said, that's exactly what he's like. I crawled out of the barracks window to use the payphone. It was night. I had a calling card. The phone rang, and she picked up. Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? I was talking low. It's me. Oh, hi. How are you? What? How are you doing? I'm fine. What about you? I'm surprised you're calling. I snuck out of the barracks. Are you all right? I'm good now. What you up to? Oh, nothing. Just hanging out with some friends from work. Hello? Yeah. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I miss you. I miss you, too. I can't stop thinking about you. I snuck out the window to call you. Can you hold on a second? Yeah, sure. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. So how have you been? What's it like? What have you been doing? Oh, uh, I'm fine. It's not really terrible. Just this, that, and the other thing, you know. I snuck out the window. Third story window? No big deal, though. There's ledges. I'm not supposed to be out here. I can barely hear you. I've got to talk quietly. If I get caught out here, I'm fucked. You said you snuck out the window? I can barely hear you. Fuck. What did you say? Nothing. I, I miss you. I miss you, too. I wish I was there right now. I wish you were here, too. Listen, I have to go. If I get caught out here, I'm absolutely fucked. I have to get back inside. Okay. I'll try and call again soon. Okay. I love you. I love you, too. Sweet dreams. You, too. Chapter 11 Sundays were easy because we had the morning off just to clean the barracks and do whatever and we could go to a religious service if we wanted to. I identified with the Hare Krishnas, but they didn't have a Hare Krishna service, so I went to the Buddhist one. You couldn't go alone. You had to go with a battle buddy. Specialist Kovac was a Buddhist, too. We went to talk to the cadre. I said, we're going to a religious service drill sergeant. He said, what religious service are you going to? Buddhist drill sergeant. Go. And we went, and it was all right. And there were a lot of people at the service because the Buddhist gave out many Reese's cups. But there was more to the services than just that. We would start off with some deep breathing. Then we would chant for a while, something like 20 minutes worth of breathing and chanting. After that, the Buddhists would tell us things about Buddhism, and they'd ask questions. And if you knew the answer, then they'd throw candy at you. On this day, Staff Sergeant Rockaway joined us. He said to call him Sergeant Rock. 
He was real into Buddhism. He said since he started being a Buddhist, he had bought a car, paid off, and a motorcycle, paid off. Buddhism had changed his life for the better. He said he'd started being a Buddhist when he was in boot camp going to the services on Sundays. Just like y'all are now, he said. The next day we learned unarmed combatives. Drill Sergeant Cole was teaching us. He taught us the sleeveless choke. He taught us the Tokyo choke. There were all different kinds of chokes we could do, and we all sat in a circle and we were supposed to take turns choking each other. They sent two of us at a time into the middle of the circle, and the object was one of us was to choke the other one out. I was paired with Specialist Kovac because we were about the same size. I choked the shit out of him. When it was over, I got the idea that I had surprised him, and I felt bad about it. The next time, I let him choke the shit out of me. Still, I felt bad about it. Kovac was my battle buddy, and I'd choked him. The only way not to graduate basic was to try and kill yourself. One kid tried hanging himself from the drop ceiling in the latrine. It didn't work. He brought the ceiling down, so he didn't die, but he didn't graduate either. My parents came down for the graduation. A lot of people's families came. A lot of people's families didn't come. We marched around on the stage in an auditorium and did cadences. The Toby Keith song was played, and we were all dismissed with a day pass, good till 2100. My parents took me to Chili's. I ordered a veggie burger. My mom said, I bet that's the first veggie burger you've had in a while. Actually, no, I said. MRE number 12 is a veggie burger and barbecue sauce. It's not bad, but this is much better. We had time to kill, so we hung out at the hotel room they had in the town by the base. My mom took a lot of pictures of me in my Class A uniform, and I smoked cigarettes, Winston Reds, and those were really good. And after a little while, we went back to Fort Leonard Wood, and we said goodbye to one another there. Chapter 12 Those of us who were healthcare specialists-to-be got on a bus. We were going to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. The bus driver was a Vietnam vet with a right hand that had been melted into a red fleshy claw back in his white phosphorus days. He was an agreeable man, and he encouraged us to drink and smoke on the bus. When we got to Fort Sam, there were all-new drill sergeants who yelled at us, but the whole drill sergeant thing was played out by then, and we didn't give a fuck if they yelled or not. All the same, we pretended like we were scared shitless so they'd overlook our being beer-drunk and smelling like cigarettes. We were in the intake a few days, waiting for groups to show up from the other basics. Then everybody was there, and we found out we were called Charlie Company, and we got on a bus to go to our next barracks. There was a girl from North Dakota named Private Harlow, and she told everyone on the bus how she liked dipping Copenhagen and getting gangbanged, so she was popular. And we all thought about what it would be like to gangbang Private Harlow. We arrived at the company. The prior service were there already. The prior service either could be military personnel changing their MOSs and branches of service, or it could be ex-military people who had enlisted again after they'd been failures in the civilian world. 
They'd get trained with us. Most of them looked like shit, and they were bad for morale. They ruined our expectations as far as what we thought we were about to become. The training battalion had a mantra, warrior medic. Naturally, everyone thought it was stupid, yet the cadre were supposed to call us warrior medics, so it was like that. And it was to last 14 weeks, but we were supposed to get weekend passes after a while. It was all classroom instruction in the beginning, which was a welcome change from basic, from digging graves and freezing our asses off in the woods and getting gassed. We had EMT textbooks and we listened to lectures. It was a lot of PowerPoint and some faces of death now and then. The faces of death was meant to get us used to mortality. We watched a guy break his neck when his car rolled. We saw an eviscerated motorcycle rider. We saw a chick who had got stabbed about a million times. There were two instructors per platoon, an E-6 staff sergeant, and a civilian paramedic. Our civilian paramedic was Ms. Gray. She was hot and probably a lesbian. But never mind. She was an expert. She worked on the life flight out of a hospital in San Antonio, and she knew more than most Army medics put together. The E-6 looked like Harold Ramis, and he chain-smoked, mentholated camels. He'd been in the Army 15 years, and he told us shit he thought we needed to know about it, namely the ways people died in the Army. He also told us you could use tampons to treat gunshot wounds. He said you ought to use unscented tampons. I asked him if he had ever been stationed at Fort Drum. He said, Why do you ask, warrior medic? I said I wanted to go to Fort Drum because my girl lived in Elba, New York, and it was just a couple hours away. He said, Don't ever ask to go to Fort Drum. You'll spend more time in the field there than you will anywhere else. It gets cold as hell, and she's just going to cheat on you. Chapter 13 Drill Sergeant Masters was a perfect honky if there ever were such a thing. He addressed the company formation. Warrior medics, you were told to come up with a company cheer. You were given a week to do this. This is what is called a deadline. As of now, you have missed the deadline. Open ranks. We said, open ranks. Half left, face. We did a half-left face, which was bad news. It meant the fucker was going to smoke us. Front! This was even worse news. It meant front back goes. When he said front, we were supposed to drop down and start doing push-ups till he said otherwise. So we did. Back! Now we were supposed to roll over and start doing sit-ups. I didn't like sit-ups, especially on concrete. They made my ass hurt. Go! Now we were supposed to jump up and run in place like sweating to the oldies, and we'd do that till he said front or back again. Front, back, and go could come in any order, at any interval, for any duration. Front! Back! Go! Front! Back! Go! Back! Go! Front! Back! Go! Front! Go! Etc., etc. This went on till the company lay prone on the concrete in a pool of its own sweat, unable to front, back, or go anymore. Then Masters had us form up again. Now, 
Since you have failed to come up with a company cheer, I have taken what is called the initiative and come up with one for you, one which you will have to learn now. This is what he had come up with. Warrior medics in the fight, on the double day and night, we will beat out all the rest, Charlie Company is the best, don't stop, get it, get it, soldier on, warrior medic, don't stop, get it, get it, make way, here come the warrior medics, ooh, ta, ah, here come the warrior medics, make Way, here come the warrior medics. Ooh, ta, ah, here come the warrior medics. Make way, here come the warrior medics. Ooh, ta, ah, here come the warrior medics. The refrain was to go on indefinitely till we were signaled to stop. That's how it went. And from that day on, whenever the company was called to attention, something that happened no less than a million times on any given day, the company cheer was to be recited in its entirety. No exceptions. To make matters worse, after a while it got to be expected that the guide-on bearer would do the robot throughout the refrain. So don't ever join the fucking army. Chapter 14 Private Harlow was in my platoon. She'd get in trouble for wearing makeup. They'd say, Harlow, don't think I don't see that makeup. Harlow, you better wash that makeup off your face. Don't let me catch you out here with makeup on again, Private. When we learned to take vital signs, I got paired up with her. She was the casualty first. She lay on her back. She'd taken her BDU top off so it'd be easier to take her blood pressure. She just had her brown T-shirt on, and she was cold because they kept the air conditioning going full blast in the classrooms. I was on my knees beside her with the stethoscope in my ears. I was getting the blood pressure cuff on her arm. She said, I'm freezing. Don't look at my tits. I hadn't looked at her tits. Now I did. She had nice tits. Her tits didn't get all flat and sideways when she lay on her back. I feel like I'm going to get teabagged, she said. She smiled when I didn't look at her. I blew up the BP cuff. Do you shave your balls? God damn. That's a yeah. I can't hear the thing when you're talking. Sorry, I'll be quiet. Drill Sergeant Masters shaves his balls. 110 over 60. You and Drill Sergeant Masters have something in common. Please, don't say stuff like that. I'm sorry. I'll never say it again. I thought probably she was telling the truth about the guy's balls. It was by no means unknown that the cadre fucked the female recruits sometimes. We knew they did that at Leonard Wood. It was the trade-off, I guess. The girls didn't have to carry their equipment, but the drill sergeants would fuck them, or some of them anyway. I was depressed. When we formed up to go back to the barracks, Harlow was slow getting in formation. Masters pulled her up. She had some dip in her mouth. She was busted. Masters told her to swallow it. She fished the dip out to throw it away, and he said no, she had to swallow it. She put the dip back in her mouth and swallowed it. She smiled at him. When he went away, she threw up in the grass.
Chapter 15 It was Wednesday. We were five weeks in and coming up on our first weekend pass. Emily was flying down to see me. She'd arrive on Friday. It was going to be amazing. She was the hottest girl in the universe, and I was dying to get laid. But it was still Wednesday, and it was 1600, so we had to form up for a close of business, and the first sergeant came out and told us he was fucking us. He said he wasn't giving us full weekend passes just yet. He said he was only letting us out Saturday night so he could see how we'd do. If things went all right, then he'd give us a full weekend pass next time. He said it like it was cool, like he wasn't fucking us, like it wasn't just an arbitrary fucking in broad daylight at four o'clock in the goddamn afternoon. I know what you're thinking, he said. You're thinking it isn't fair. You're thinking the other companies don't do it this way. Well, here's the news, warrior medics. This ain't other companies. This is Charlie Company, and we do things differently. That's why we're number one. I called Emily and told her the bad news. She was mad as fuck, but she said she was flying down anyway. She'd already arranged to take off from work. She said she'd come to town that Friday. When Friday came around, I couldn't not see her. She was at the Super 8 off the highway by the base. She was close. I said, fuck it. I took a chance. The company gave us an hour free every day in the afternoon for taking care of PX-type bullshit. An hour would be enough. Fifteen minutes to get there, fifteen minutes to get back. Half an hour with Emily. I had no choice. I had to try. I caught a cab at the big PX. I said, take me to the Super 8 Motel. It wasn't five minutes from the gate. The cab let me out in front of the office. I went looking for a room. It was on the second floor. I found it. She opened the door, and the way she looked, there was nothing else for it. Saturday, she said, I hate this. I said, what can I do? I'm in it now. Fuck. What? You act like you had no choice, but you did. You act like I'm the one who left you. You can't even compare the two things, she said. Why not? I changed what school I was going to. You still could have come to see me whenever you wanted, and it wouldn't have been like this. I wouldn't have said, oh, well, gee, sweetheart, I wish I could stay, but Sergeant Fuckass says I have to be in bed at four o'clock in the afternoon. She'd spend Friday night alone at the Super 8. She'd be spending Sunday night alone, too. She was flying back to Elba on Monday morning. All we had was Saturday. She said I was an asshole. I said I understood that, but I had done the best I could, and it wasn't like it had been the easiest thing in the world getting off post Friday afternoon. I about hadn't made it back on time. I'd have been so fucked. About Friday, she said she'd thought we could have at least talked a little first. I said I hadn't known she felt that way. I said I'd thought it was the romantic thing to do. Sunday morning, Emily came along with me when I went back to the company. I had to go upstairs to the barracks and change into my PT clothes so I'd be ready when they called formation. I came back down in my PT shorts and my PT shirt, some ASICs running shoes on. The short said, Army. The shirt said, Army. I was wearing the reflector belt we always had to wear. It went diagonally across the chest. I looked like a fucking douchebag. Emily cried. She cried till it was time for her to get in a cab and leave. 
and the whole time I was trying to act like I was tough because I thought I was tough, and I was supposed to be tough, but I wasn't. And I can tell you now that there are many things better than to try and be tough. Not the least of which is to be young and fuck your girl and leave it at that. Chapter 16 There was a fake river in San Antonio. It was like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, except instead of pirates and pirate ships, you got fat drunks in chain restaurants. I was down by the fake river. Kovac was with me. We were walking around. It was night, the weekend after Emily. We had our first full weekend pass. It was Friday. Kovac was an Air Force brat from Nevada who'd had some bad luck on account of he liked speedballs too much. Then he'd joined the Army. He was 23, so he'd made the liquor run early that afternoon. I'd put away a fifth of Seagram's gin already. I missed Emily. Longing devoured my liver. I felt like Prometheus with his fucking birds. Now it was getting late and I thought I ought to eat something. We passed what was advertised as a pub and grill. You could see inside there were bagpipes on the walls, different types of flags, whatever. There were waitresses in plaid skirts. I didn't care. They had a veggie burger on the menu, so I wanted in, but the guy out front who was wearing a kilt wouldn't let me in because I was only 20. I said I wasn't trying to drink, I just wanted the veggie burger. And still, he said no. I said I'd order one to go. He wouldn't let me do that either. I got inarticulate. I told Kovac to go ahead without me. I almost walked backwards into the fake river, but I was lucky and didn't. I took the stairs up to street level, and the Alamo was there. A bum asked me for a cigarette. I gave him one, and I told him about how I'd got fucked around on the fake river. He said they were dirty motherfuckers for fucking me around like that. He was wearing an old Expos cap pulled down low, and I couldn't see his eyes, but he sounded sincere. He said there was a Denny's nearby. I said Denny's was good. I asked him if he wanted to go get some Denny's. He said he didn't have money. I said I'd pay. We got a booth in the smoking section, and the waitress took our orders right away. I was talking drunk, so I asked the bum about his situation and how he'd got to be a bum. He said his life had got fucked about the time he went to prison. What were you in prison for? Murder. The pancakes arrived. A fool raped my sister, so I shot him dead. That's understandable. The bum was on parole, and his parole officer gave him a hard time because he didn't have a job, but he couldn't get a job because he was mentally ill. Leave your parole officer to me, I said. I'm in the Army. We've got a lot of juice these days. What's his contact info? He gave me his parole officer's name and telephone number. We parted ways outside the Denny's. I assured him I'd have things straightened out for him soon. Monday afternoon, Ms. Gray told us about the bad weekend she'd had. Life flight had been called out to a barbecue party in the countryside. A young woman, the mother of young children, crashed a four-wheeler into a barbecue pavilion at a campground and hemorrhaged in her head and died on the scene in front of the whole barbecue party. Her head turned purple, a lot of bad swelling, kids there and everything. Ms. Gray said things like this happened all the time. 
We filled out our wish lists. I'd given it a lot of thought and had decided I'd like to be stationed at either Walter Reed Army Hospital or Aberdeen Proving Ground or Brook Army Medical Center or, should those fall through, Fort Drum. Harold Ramis had said Fort Drum was a bad time, but it was near Elba, so it was near Emily, and if it was as bad as it was supposed to be, I was a shoe-in. I called the bum's parole officer that evening. I wanted to leave a message, put the ball in his court, as it were. I said who I was, and I said I was in the Army, and I'd taken an interest in the welfare of one Mr. Charlie Pride. I said Mr. Pride had some bad mental illnesses he was dealing with, and he couldn't rightfully be held accountable for his not having a job, and I was prepared to go through the proper channels if the situation wasn't resolved soon. There was a lot of fucking around with mannequins. There were mannequins that were just trunks with heads. There were entire mannequins with arms and legs. There were mannequins with rubber lungs. There were mannequins with rubber bones sticking out of their legs. There were mannequins that could squirt fake blood. There were even little baby mannequins with cherubim faces. Any mannequin you could think of had been provided for the training of warrior medics, and we crawled around on the floor going from mannequin to mannequin while the cadre read scenarios to us. Blood pressure dropped to 70 over 20. You pretended to start a line on the mannequin and push imaginary fluids. Your patient is vomiting. You rolled the mannequin over on its side and cleared out its make-believe airway before it make-believe aspirated on make-believe vomit and make-believe died. Sucking chest wound. An occlusive dressing was the thing for one of those. Patient shows tracheal deviation. A make-believe tension pneumothorax called for a make-believe needle chesty compression on the midclavicular line of the make-believe third intercostal space. Severe facial burns around the mouth and nose. A mannequin like that would need a make-believe cricothyroidotomy. Eventually, we did stick one another's real-life veins with 14-gauge needle catheters, and we drew one another's real-life blood with butterflies. I drew some of Harlow's blood. She didn't like needles. They made her tremble. She said, Please be gentle. Chapter 17 I tried to be good, but I was fucked up. Emily'd got a job as a shot girl, and I got wasted. I was kicking around the hallway on one of the floors of the fake River Hyatt, and Kovac was helping me to not get arrested. I kept saying how it sounded slutty as fuck, shot girl. And Emily wasn't picking up her phone. I said, Kovac, doesn't it sound slutty as fuck? He said he didn't know what to tell me. I said he was a useless motherfucker. I said, if you're just going to say useless shit, I'd rather you shut the fuck up. Then I saw Harlow coming down the hall. She was with five prior service, all dudes. She asked me what I was doing. I said the fake river was shit because they carded everywhere. She said, really? She said she didn't get carded. She asked if that was Kovac. I said, yeah, that was Kovac. She said, hi, Kovac. Kovac said hi. The prior service got impatient and they were dicks about it. I told the one that he was a rapist. He asked me if I was supposed to be Captain Savaho. I punched him in the mouth. He got a hold of me. I tried to get around him so I could choke him out, but I only got him in a headlock. I was at a loss for what to do then. 
I tried running his head into the door, but it didn't work. I couldn't get enough momentum. He said let go of me, and his voice was all froggy, and it made it so I couldn't concentrate. His fucking rapist was once a child, I thought. His friends were on me. I got punched in the jaw, and it clicked for days after. Kovac tried to help me, and he punched me in the neck. A woman was shouting behind the door, I called security! We all scattered. Harlow and Kovac and I ran down the stairs and out of the hotel. We went back to the fake river. The fake river was shit. It was top 40 music. It was stale Bud Light, and it was cargo shorts. It was quesadillas and axe body spray. It was everything I was guilty of. Harlow had a glow about her. She cleaned up nice. She asked me for a cigarette, and I held out the pack, and she touched my wrist. I held out a lighter for her, and she held my arm at the elbow when she leaned toward me. We walked for an hour before we felt like it was safe to go back to the hotel. She stood real close in the elevator. The room was on the seventh floor. Kovac ordered a movie on pay-per-view. I made a gin and tonic. Harlow wanted one as well. She sat next to me on the edge of the bed. She kept brushing her tits against my arm and breathing on me on accident. I told her that I had a girlfriend and that it was serious. But we're scared, she said, and it's okay to do things when we're scared. I said I was sorry. She fucked Kovac in the bathroom. You could hear she was really going. She liked Dick a lot. Chapter 18 we all got our orders on the same day. My orders said I was going to Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas. Fort Hood hadn't been on my wish list. There were two divisions at Fort Hood, the 1st Cavalry Division and the 4th Infantry Division. I knew I wasn't going to 1st Cav because people going to 1st Cav had orders that were different from mine. Theirs said 1st Cav and mine didn't. Mine only said 3rd Corps, but that meant 4th I.D., it wasn't five minutes before I'd found out that 4th ID was deploying to Iraq that fall. And I was thinking, Emily will be mad at me. Kovac's order said he was going to work in a hospital on a base in Alaska. He wasn't happy about it, but I envied him. I walked to the stairs. A girl was there. She was crying into her cell phone. They're sending me to Walter Reed, Mom. No. But mom, but mom, 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 I'm a warrior medic. Life is strange. I had read in the news that Joe's battalion was in some bad shit that summer. There had been one week when his battalion lost 19 killed, all kids from Ohio. I tried getting in touch with Joe by email and I hadn't heard back from him. I did talk to Roy, though. He said his cousin was still alive and in one piece. He said he would let me know if anything changed as far as that went. Weekend passes had come to an end because clinicals were to start that week, so we were stuck on post. It was 2100. We were formed up and waiting on Drill Sergeant Masters to come down and do accountability. 
Masters was a fuck, and he had got it in his head to go upstairs and inspect the barracks. I didn't remember having locked up my aid bag, and sure enough, when Masters came down the stairs, he was holding it up like he'd really done something. Who is number 89? he said. Whose aid bag is this? I raised my hand, and he had me get out of ranks and stand at attention. Front-leaning rest position, move! I got in the front-leaning rest, and he left me that way while he went about telling us what the black market was. Has anybody here ever heard of the black market? We assumed this was a rhetorical question. Warrior medic, some of you will be going to Iraq and Afghanistan soon. In Iraq, in Afghanistan, they have the black market. The people there are poorer than dirt. They will steal anything that is left unsecured and sell it on the black market. He picked up my aid bag and opened it and dumped its contents onto the ground. The contents, a few field dressings, some ace wraps, two Israeli bandages, a dusty-looking combatube set, an oral pharyngeal, a nasal pharyngeal, an unpacked syringe, some IV tubing, two 500cc bags of lactated ringers, maybe half a dozen 14-gauge needle catheters, had little to no monetary value. He tossed the bag aside. Medical equipment is a big seller on the black market. He bent down to address me face to face. Warrior medic, your battle buddy has just died because you did not secure your aid bag, and it was stolen and sold on the black market. When he got hit, you could do nothing to help him. Your battle buddy is dead, and it is your fault. You have just killed your battle buddy, warrior medic. What are you going to tell his family? He had me do push-ups till I reached muscle failure. It didn't take three minutes to get there. Still, I did a lot of push-ups. I was good at them. Most of us could do push-ups. And were the outcomes of all the wars decided by push-ups and idle talk? America might never lose. Chapter 19 Brook Army Medical Center, BAMC, was the hospital on Fort Sam. It treated civilians as well as military. The floors were very clean. It was a nice hospital. We did clinicals there two weeks. We were supposed to go to BAMC and act like we knew what we were doing. There were five of us on the floor I was on, five trainees. They split us up. We each made our rounds. There was a guy who had been in a motorcycle wreck. His leg was broken. His wife was there in the room. I put the BP cuff on inside out and it blew up like a life raft when I turned the machine on. He was cool about it, but his wife thought I was a total asshole. I kept on with my rounds. A man had been stabbed up in some kind of hobo war. The smell of his body was overpowering. I was to give him a sponge bath. I lifted up his balls and everything. I was storing treasure in heaven where no thief can get to it. One of the patients was a soft man in his thirties who had been run over by a car while crossing a street. The car had snatched off his penis and left him no bullshit retarded. His mother was at his bedside, and her grief was so intense that to look at her was like to stare into the sun. I was glad to have the blood pressure cuff figured out by then because they were nice people, and I'd have hated myself were I to give them any more cause for sorrow. 
At the end of one of the corridors was a sealed room with a kid who'd been burned up in Iraq. A soldier, a kid, no difference. The room was off-limits because his burns made him ultra-vulnerable to infection, but there was a window that looked in on him so you could see him in there, where his whole life had led him to. I got through clinicals without accidentally murdering anyone, and I guess I was proud of myself. The feeling lasted well into Friday evening up till the moment my balls died suddenly and unexpectedly. I had got punched in the balls as a joke, an army joke. I knew something was wrong, but I waited till my balls had swollen up real bad before I told the cadre. I went back to BAMC, this time as a patient. They took x-rays in the ER. The doctor said some shit about an inguinal hernia. I didn't know what that was. He said I wouldn't need surgery, at least not as far as he could tell. Still, there was the swelling, and my balls hurt like a motherfucker. I was laid out on a gurney in the ER, and the hospital staff wheeled in a guy who'd been picked up off the street. The guy was beat up pretty bad and sobbing. They put him next to me. Through the curtain, I heard the nurses talking. They said the guy was concussed and he'd swallowed some teeth and he had broken ribs and somebody had poured bleach in his eyes. They called his mother. His mother got there. She wouldn't stop talking. Who did this to you, honey? Honey, did they take your billfold? Did they take your billfold? They did. Honey, did they take your billfold? Jesus. I got out of the hospital early in the morning with a week's supply of 800 milligram ibuprofens and a light-duty profile. I was glad to still have my balls, but I didn't know if I'd get to do the big field training exercise that was coming up that week. It was the last thing before graduation, and I didn't think I could graduate if I didn't go. I'd get kicked down to Delta Company, and they were a month behind, so I'd be stuck at Fort Sam an extra month. I couldn't let that happen. I was supposed to go home for three weeks after graduation. I'd do it, balls be damned. I didn't make it through the first day of the field training exercise. It was one of those deals where they gave you a rubber M16 and you were supposed to go around saying bang, bang, bang. I was with a squad riding up a ridge in a deuce and a half, and when we got to the top of the ridge, we were all supposed to jump out of the back and get ready to say bang, bang, bang. But when I jumped out, something went wrong in my crotch, and I crumpled to the ground. They took me from the field on a litter and brought me to the aid station. The medics had a look at my balls, and my balls weren't doing so good. I had bled into them, and they had turned royal blue. The supervising medic of the aid station had all his medics come through to look at my balls. They discussed my balls in front of me. The company first sergeant came in and he looked at my balls. He thought it was funny. I went to the hospital and a man stuck his finger up my ass. He didn't tell me he was going to do it. He just let me have it. Then there was another man who came to talk with me and he told me that the bleeding into my balls had inflamed my epididymis. At last, I got some morphine. Then I felt better. The morphine was super nice. The bed was very comfortable. The hospital menu had a veggie burger, and I ordered one, and it was good, and I was about ready to turn in for a night's rest when a doctor showed up with a group of interns so they could all have a look at my balls and talk about them.
I went back to the field the next morning with a bottle of penicillin, a three-day supply of Percocet, and a bed rest profile. There was a company formation, the first sergeant and the captain were out in front being dicks, and the first sergeant said, Hey, where's old Smurf Balls at? He back yet? I was obliged to raise my hand. The first sergeant said to the captain, That's the one I was telling you about. His balls turned blue. The formation was dismissed, and I was told to go see the first sergeant and the captain. Well, Smurf Balls, said the first sergeant, how did you like BAMC? It was all right, first sir. Good. Take good care of you, did they? Yes, first sir. The captain said, did they put you on any kind of a profile? Bed rest, first sir. I just fucked up. You didn't call the captain a first sergeant, you called him a sir. But I was dehydrated and had a couple Percocets in me, so I'd accidentally demoted him. He was displeased. I'm the captain, son. You call me sir. You got that? I'm the first sergeant, son. What the fuck's wrong with you? Do they have you on any pain medication? Percocet, sir. You'd better let me have that. So I was tired and dismayed, but then I got some good news, too. The good news was that I was going to graduate on time, even though I wasn't taking part in the FTX. And then I'd go home and I'd see Emily. The day the company did the mass casualty exercise, part of the scenery was a lot of old, ripped-up, fake-bloody Air Force uniforms for the fake casualties to make them look fake-bloodier. I was on a one-man laundry detail cleaning these uniforms. There wasn't going to be any bed rest for me, never mind that I was practically fucking crippled. I was carrying an armload of these fake bloody Air Force uniforms up to the shack with the washing machine in it when I ran into a make-believe perimeter patrol from the make-believe forward operating base. Somebody said, Halt! 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 Yeah, you! I knew him, of course. I had punched him in the mouth before at the fake River Hyatt. We didn't like each other, and he outranked me. He was an E-5, a sergeant, and I was an E-2, nothing. I was at a disadvantage. I said to him, I'm not part of this shit. I'm on the laundry detail. What laundry detail? This laundry detail. What do you think I'm carrying these uniforms for? Who authorized the detail? You're insane and you have no idea. What did you say? Eat a fucking dick. He turned to the trainee beside him and handed her his rubber M16. Hold my weapon, warrior medic. I said, shit. He picked me up off the ground and body-slammed me. Fake bloody Air Force uniforms went all over the place. He pinned my arms behind my back while he was digging his knee into my right kidney, putting as much of his body weight into it as he could manage. I'd landed with my face on a little ant hill, and ants crawled out and all over my face and bit me. I suppose I deserved it. Are you done mouthing off? Fuck you, bitch. He wouldn't let me go. I could see some of his make-believe patrol out of the corner of my eye. Kovac was with them. I said, Kovac, what the fuck is the matter with you? He said, hey, stop. That's the guy who hurt his balls. We graduated. They played the Toby Keith song. We were free to leave. 
My balls were getting back to normal, but the penicillin I'd been taking for my epididymitis had made me ultra-sensitive to sunlight, and I was badly sunburned. Plus, there were the ant bites. I ran into Private Harlow just as I was leaving for the airport, and she saw me, and she laughed in my face. Chapter 20 Emily was driving. She said, What if I chopped off your feet? I said, No. What? You'd like it. You're fucking lazy. You could just sit around and smoke dope all day. Think about it. Save you the trip. I think you'd get in trouble if you cut off my feet, baby. Not if you don't press charges. Destruction of government property. Seriously? I'm afraid so. It'd be out of my hands. Hmm. They think of everything. I wish I could chop your feet off. I know, baby. It isn't fair. No, it isn't. Emily'd be with me the whole time I was home, and she drove me around when I had to go places. Things were good. She was between jobs. She wasn't a shot girl anymore. She had saved money up. She was caught up on her loans. She was caught up at school. She'd got all A's. I was so proud of her. I was glad she wasn't a shot girl anymore. I had three weeks. The only catch was I had to spend two weeks doing some shit called hometown recruiting. I got to see Kelly in space again. They didn't remember me. That was fine. There was recruiting to be done at a fair in Mayfield. Sergeant Bellamy and I had brought the army of one rock-climbing wall along with us, but the only people at the fair who wanted anything to do with it were the babies. I'd put the babies in through harnesses and clipped them to ropes attached to automatic belaying devices atop the army of one rock-climbing wall. The belaying devices were good because the babies didn't break their necks, but the problem was that the babies didn't weigh enough and the devices pulled them up directly to the top of the wall. I'd clip a baby to a rope and up the wall the baby would go. I asked Bellamy what I ought to do. Bellamy was a recruiter who had come aboard at the Severance Armed Forces Career Center in the time since I'd gone through there that past January. He was a short, paunchy man with dirty eyes, and he had a mouthful of gold like space. I said, what am I supposed to do, sir? These kids can't get on the thing, right? They're too light. They fly straight up and get stuck at the top. He said, just make it work, Pry. So I did what the man said, and I kept hooking babies to the ropes, and the babies kept flying away, and I'd have to climb up the wall and fetch them down again. This went on for a long time. I don't know where they got all the babies from, but they did. They kept bringing me baby after baby till a thunderstorm came along to drive everybody away from the fair, and we took the army of one rock-climbing wall down so it wouldn't get struck by lightning. Bellamy rode off in his late-model Dodge Durango. I hung around in the deluge and waited for Emily to come get me. I liked rain, and I was already soaked, so it didn't make a difference if I stood in the rain or not. When Emily pulled up, she looked perfect. She was very good to me. We went to meet my parents at a Mexican restaurant. My dad asked me how things had gone at the fair, and I recounted the babies for him, and everyone agreed it was funny. We all had a nice time, and I couldn't help but think that it was too bad that I was supposed to go to Iraq in a few weeks. But it couldn't be helped. You make your bed, you lie in it.
I assumed I'd be piss-tested about as soon as I got the Fort Hood, so I was trying to get a lot of weed-smoking in early on. Most everyone I knew lived near enough to Severance, and this was easily done. I had an hour before I had to be back at the Armed Forces Career Center. Emily picked me up and drove me over to James Lightfoot's mom's house. James Lightfoot and I got blazed as shit. Emily didn't smoke weed, she only fucked with pills. I brought a razor with me and I was shaving at the kitchen sink. I was cutting the shit out of myself and James Lightfoot was telling me about Kashi, the Indian. Kashi had been living in Cleveland the past four years studying at Case. Now his student visa was up and he'd have to leave the country soon if he didn't do something. And he was thinking about enlisting in the army as a means of becoming an American citizen. Why does he want to be an American citizen? That beats me. I guess he likes it here better than India. Huh. Do you have any clear eyes? I was five minutes late, getting back. I had needed the extra time to get myself together. I was still blazed as shit. Bellamy was the only guy in the office when I came in. The rest of the recruiters had already left for the big freestyle basketball tournament downtown. Bellamy was pissed at me. He told me to start doing push-ups, and I went about doing that. Then I said, I apologize for being late, Sar, but I have a good reason. I think I may have found somebody who wants to sign up. Recover, he said. Tell me about it in the Durango. Once we were on our way, I gave Bellamy the details about Kashi, and he made me promise not to tell any of the other recruiters. I said I wouldn't. Our stand was set up in a parking lot across the street from the arena. A great deal of basketball-related shit was taking place there. I milled around the crowd and tried to hand out flyers. Someone asked me what suburb I was from. His face was youthful at first glance, but then I saw the crow's feet and the laugh lines. He was missing a front tooth. He had his dirty blonde hair done up in cornrows, and he was wearing calves shorts and a tall tee. He said his name was Jug. I tried to recruit Jug for the Army, but he said he wouldn't do it because Vice President Cheney had conspired with the Illuminati to knock down the Twin Towers and take control of the world's oil supply. I admitted that I hadn't heard this. And yet here you are, he said, your ignorant ass trying to hoodwink all these young niggas into spilling their blood for Dick the Devil and the Illuminati. I told him I had to be going because Sergeant Bellamy was probably looking for me. He asked if I'd ever been to Iraq. I'm supposed to go this fall. Better tell them people you're gay, go to Canada some shit. I said I didn't think there was any way out of it. He said, you're gonna die. Chapter 21 Fort Hood was bleak a new kind of desert engineered to induce fatalism in the young. It worked like a charm. Fourth ID put me in an armor battalion. It wasn't all armor, though. The battalions were getting mixed up then. There were two armor companies, Alpha and Bravo, and two infantry companies, Delta and Echo, and an engineer company, Charlie, along with a support company, Foxtrot, and a headquarters company, HHC. The latter two had a lot of different shit in them. Cooks, mechanics, scouts, mortars, intelligence, finance. The medic platoon was part of HHC. I went there first. I'd either stay there as part of the aid station or get attached to one of the line companies, Alpha through Echo. 
I didn't like it in the medic platoon. Most everybody in it was older than I was, and they put a premium on a kind of talking I wasn't any good at. So I told the guy running the platoon that I wanted to be in one of the line companies, and he attached me to Echo. That's how I got into the infantry. It was September. We were deploying in November. The company was a tight group. So it went about as you'd expect. There was a lot of who the fuck are you. Sergeant Shu was my boss, big kind of broish motherfucker. The other two medics attached to Bravo were Joes, lower enlisted like I was, PFC Yuri and PFC Burns. They were good people. Yuri was arrogant as fuck, but it was all right, and the eleven Bs liked him on account of he was batshit crazy in the heavy metal sense of the words. As for Burns, he was maybe too smart to be in the army. You could see it was killing him how dumb it was. He kept to himself mostly and spent his off time studying differential calculus and drinking ice house beer. He was planning a career in politics. He was in his early thirties and seemed old as fuck to all of us who were just kids, really. I was lucky in that my roommates in the barracks were laid back and not excessively patriotic. They were infantry from Delta Company. P.F.C. Grace and Private Carranza. Grace was from Oregon. He was twenty, like I was. He looked like Jean-Michel Basquiat, and he talked like a surfer. He was my assigned roommate. Carranza was staying there unofficially on Grace's invitation. Carranza was married, so he got B.A.H., the basic housing allowance, which meant he couldn't get a place in the barracks. He had an apartment off post in Killeen, but for whatever reason, Mrs. Carranza was pissed at him, and he was kind of homeless. It so happened that Grace and Carranza were fucking the same 17-year-old girl from Harker Heights. Carranza explained it all to me. That's my little snow bunny, he said. I'm keeping on ice. Then Grace married her, and that sorted it out but the three of them still hung out together and they watched Casino five or six times a week. Grace was going to die in Iraq and Carranza's face would get destroyed there, but this was before any of those things happened, so hearts were light. Apparently Grace was some kind of dynamo in the fucking department because the girl would go nuts whenever he fucked her. You could hear her through the wall. They'd go for hours. You got the idea? that it was true love, sacred and unguarded. But it was none of my business. I was in the business of being lonely all the time. Weekends, I'd go to the movies in Killeen. It was one of those big shopping center movie theaters, and I'd spent so much time there I'd run out of movies I hadn't seen. I'd talk to Emily as much as I could. I'd call her up after nine when the minutes were free, and it was ten her time, so she'd usually be done with work. She was waiting tables at a chain restaurant. They served Caribbean food there. She said it was good. She worked full-time. She went to school full-time. She did all the homework. It was hard to imagine having the energy for all that. She was working her ass off, and it was good that we could at least talk, but there was a distance. I'd been in the army going on nine months by then. People think you don't exist, she said. They think I'm making you up. I said I was sorry about that. I never see you, she said. It isn't normal. Why don't I get to have a boyfriend I can see? 
I said, I think I'll have the chance to make it up there around Columbus Day, maybe Veterans Day at the latest. Okay, just hold on for me, you know? I miss you. I miss you too. And it was always that. That was most of all what we said to one another. Since I was the fucking new guy, I got sent with the company when it went out to the field to train. It was considered a hassle to go and sit out there for days and do nothing, and it would have been a hassle for a Shu or a Yuri or a Burns, who'd done it a million and a half times already, but I didn't mind. I would have just been lonely as shit anyway, and I could smoke cigarettes as I pleased. The weather had been dry for months, and when the company trained with live ammunition, the tracer rounds set the grass on fire. I'd go out and run around with a square rubber mat on the end of a long stick and slap at the fires to put them out. Sometimes the grass fires crept into a tree, and the tree would go up like a match, which I liked. It was good to go AWOL. There wasn't any training on the calendar for Columbus Day weekend, so there was a window. As long as I could make it back in time for the 0600 formation that Tuesday, no one would know I'd been gone. As I was going AWOL, I couldn't use the Killeen Airport. There was a chance the Army would have some goons there checking paperwork. Fortunately, Yuri had a pathological aversion to authority types, and he said he'd drive me to the regional airport in Temple. From there, I could fly to Bush Intercontinental in Houston and make a connecting flight north. When work was over, we got out of town, Lamb of God blaring in his Honda Accord. I didn't know how he could listen to that shit and not kill himself, but I was grateful to him. It rained all weekend in Elba. Emily and I lay around and slept through the days. We would go out and drive around at night, it was fall, and you could really feel that it was fall. There was that ache. You were crushed by the beauty of it all, all the bare trees and the black sky and the streetlights. It was two years since we had met. We were older now. We both had money saved, and we had our jobs, and we were very much on our own. She'd be 21 in a month. We were so sure that we had grown up. We would get married before I went to Iraq. She brought it up this time. She said it made practical sense. If we were married, I'd get paid more, and she could be on my health insurance. And I'd get to marry Emily. But we're going to get divorced, she said. I said that was fine. I said, we'll get divorced if that's what you want. Chapter 22 Emily and I were married in Elba by a justice of the peace the Tuesday after Veterans Day. Joe and Roy had made the drive over from Cleveland to visit Emily and me that Friday night, and Joe headbutted me in the face. It was all in good fun, though. He hadn't meant anything by it. He didn't know that Emily and I were getting married. No one did. She didn't want anyone to know. My nose was busted and there was still blood on my windbreaker and we had no rings. Emily was wearing a blue mechanic's jacket with a name tag on it that read Mario. She looked like an angel. And we knew that at that moment we were the two most beautiful things in the world. How long it lasted, I don't know, but it was true for at least a few minutes. 
six billion people in the world, and no one had it on us. After we got married, she drove me to the airport, and we sat in her car in the parking lot and cried like babies till it was time for me to go. Part 3 Cherry Chapter 23 Unless you happen to have been there, you've never heard of where we were, so it doesn't matter. There was a FOB, a forward operating base. The FOB had been built up around a power plant beside the river. The power plant was a monster of a thing and made all kind of noise. It burned oil, so oil was everywhere. Oil was in the air, oil covered the ground. We lived in the shadow of the power plant by the north gate in the Russian village, which was a few buildings, concrete buildings, close together. That was our company area, where we slept and lived and all that. Delta Company was down at the other end of the motor pool. The aid station was down that way, too, next to the LZ. The rest of the battalion was in the tent city on the east end of the fob, on the other side of the power plant, past the Haji shops, toward the main gate. The battalion talk was up that way, next to the tent city. At first I thought people were saying talk, because the radios were in the talk, and people talk on radios, but it wasn't talk, it was talk. And talk stood for something, and somebody had to tell me that, or I'd always had it wrong, possibly, so talk. The battalion had its talk. Each company had its own talk. There were many talks. Talks abounded. The battalion talk was the big one, though. Two stories faced the road that ran along the north wall of the fob. The road ran west to where we were, by the north gate, where you could look out and see the river on the left-hand side and Route Martha going up through the fields and the palm groves. Route Martha wasn't two lanes worth of tar. We showed up in December. We were taking over for some nasty girls, the Mississippi Rifles. They weren't big on ceremony. They said we were ate the fuck up. They had pictures of their kills, and they'd collated them into a PowerPoint slideshow called Towelhead Takedown. We phased in as they phased out. We did right-seat, left-seat rides. The last of the Mississippi Rifles was on his way home by Christmas. Christmas was our first day on our own. Third platoon was on QRF-1. I was third platoon's medic. We were staging by the power plant when Haji shot the battalion talk with a rocket. Three were wounded, but we didn't see anything. We were 200 meters from where the rocket hit, and there were buildings in the way. It was a great disappointment. In the beginning, you wanted to be where the action was. QRF-1 meant we were supposed to go out if anything happened in the battalion's area of operations. Should a patrol get hit or make contact, we were its backup. Should EOD get called, we were its escort. So it didn't make sense when we were sent out to pull security while one of the miscellaneous sergeants from our headquarters platoon flew a small remote-controlled airplane around outside the base. 
The little airplane was called a raptor. I didn't like it. You were wide awake when you got out on the ground outside the wire for the first time. You expected to get shot any moment. We had stopped at a random spot where you couldn't see anyone around, but you were nevertheless sure that there was a haji out there who had been waiting all day just to shoot you. And you were as ready for it as you could get, but it didn't happen. The sergeant fucked around with his airplane, the sun went down, the sergeant got his airplane back, and we mounted up and left. It had got dark fast. On our way back, we heard the battalion net saying Charlie Company Patrol was hit out on Route Polk. And we were supposed to get there. The problem was we'd been out fucking around with the little airplane, and we were on the wrong side of the fob. We had to go through the main gate on the southeast end, then cut through the fob to get out at the north gate. We went half a click on Martha and turned right on Route Grove, which got us to Polk. If we'd been on the fob to start with... We'd have made it in five minutes. As it was, it took us close to thirty minutes. Half the battalion had beaten us to the spot. A long column of vehicles was between us and the Charlie Company patrol. It had gone out over the net that there were five casualties from an IED, two KIAs, three WIAs. I was in Lieutenant Hayward's truck, and I asked him if I ought to go out and help out, seeing as I was supposed to be a medic. He sent Specialist Sullivan with me. An up-armored Humvee was overturned and on fire in the bomb crater. There were three wounded lying on the road near the truck and two dead in the truck in the fire. The wounded were stable, broken bones, minor burns, concussions, shit like that, nothing life-threatening. The Charlie Company medic had done well getting the wounded ready for medevac. Some medics from HHC had come out and they'd helped him. The medevac helicopter touched down on a field to the left of the road. We took up the litters with the wounded and carried them out into the dark and over the broken ground. We were all crouching down low well before we were under the rotor blades, and with what little light there was, I could see the man on the litter I was helping carry. His eyes were wild and grieving. He was in his lizard brain. We made eye contact, and I said, I got you. I said it real loud so he could hear me over the helicopters, and then I was embarrassed because it was a stupid and melodramatic thing to have said, and I had said it. Back at the road, the upside-down Humvee wasn't on fire anymore. There was a wrecker trying to take it out of the hole in the road, and a lot of people were in the way trying to get a look at the bodies that were still inside the truck. A master sergeant was ground-guiding the wrecker, and he got the yelling, Everyone out of the way! This ain't a fucking show! Sullivan and I were in the way, so we walked back to Hayward's truck and Sullivan said, Did you see those bodies? You could see all the bones. When we got back to the fob, guys were waiting for us in the motor pool. They asked us what all had happened and who had got killed and what we had seen. I wasn't much good for telling them anything. I went and talked to Shu. Shu thought it was funny that I was being such a bitch about it. He was laughing at me some. He said I'd just got my cherry popped. I went back to the room I stayed in. Some of the others who stayed in the room were there. Burns, Yuri, Lessing, Fuentes, Cheetah. They were there. All of them but Arnold were there. They wanted to know what had happened. I didn't really know what had happened, but I told them anyway. Fuentes left to go to the company talk. 
He had to go on radio guard. He left the room solemnly like he was off to embalm his own grandmother. Arnold came in. Fuentes had relieved him. He said he'd heard on the radio that the three guys we had put on the helicopter were dead. It fucked me up. I was kind of devastated. They hadn't looked like they were going to die. What had we missed? Arnold's boss, Staff Sergeant Drummond, came in and I said, Sar, is it true the guys we put on the medevac are dead? No, who told you that? Arnold said he heard on the net that they were dead. Arnold's a retard. I thought that was what I heard, Sar. Shut up, Arnold. And you, calm down and don't get so excited. You're acting like a woman. Drummond left. Yuri said, that guy's an asshole. We all smoked cigarettes. Lessing was pissed off. He said, we got our asses kicked today. Lessing was from Chicago. Burns was doing some math. We took eight casualties today, he said, out of a population of what, maybe 800? And we're here for a fucking year, I said. A year's worth of fucking days. Yuri said we were fucked. Lessing said, what did you guys think you were coming here to do? Chapter 24 a few days after Christmas, 2nd Platoon had an IED go off on one of their patrols. A Humvee was torn up and on fire. All the soldiers got out of the truck okay, but a reporter was still inside. The reporter's head was fucked up pretty well from the blast, and he was unconscious in the back seat of the burning truck next to the ammo boxes. Sergeant Thorpe went back into the truck to get the reporter. This was brave of him to do since the truck was on fire, plus he thought he was getting shot at. The shots he heard were rounds cooking off. Thorpe pulled the reporter out of the truck and got himself shot by a cooked-off round in the process. He was hit on the inside of the thigh, but he wasn't hurt bad, just a flesh wound, as they say. The reporter was the worse for wear. He was burned on his face and upper body and had what would prove to be some brain damage. But Burns, who was 2nd Platoon's medic, helped him out and kept him from dying till they could put him on a helicopter. The guy ended up living, so Burns had done well, and Thorpe was a hero. A no-bullshit shot hero. Thorpe's wife was pregnant. She was in the Army, too. She was with 4th ID, but she hadn't deployed. She was with the rear detachment back at Fort Hood, and she'd got knocked up there. Seeing as Mr. and Mrs. Sergeant Thorpe had said goodbye to one another in November, and seeing as it was still December, you'd think she'd have tried telling him the baby was his, but the thing was, she couldn't. The reason being Mr. and Mrs. Sergeant Thorpe were white people, and Mrs. Sergeant Thorpe had got knocked up by a black guy. When she first told her husband about this, she said it was a consensual thing between her and the black guy. Then she said the black guy had raped her, the police must have believed her because the black guy was in jail. Sergeant Thorpe more or less lost his mind over all this, and he'd talk to anyone who'd listen about what had happened to him. He'd get all philosophical about it and quote Top 40 radio songs. He had this look in his eyes like he'd about died. She'd almost killed him. Staff Sergeant Drummond said, I could have told you old girl was a whore. Thorpe was on radio guard, and we were talking about him behind his back because we all felt bad for him, even Drummond, who wasn't big on sympathy. 
He said, me and my wife had those two over to our house for supper one time, and this was in September, and she told me and my wife right in front of her husband how she'd screwed her first-line supervisor in a portageon when she was deployed back in 03. She said it right there at the table while we were eating supper. My wife couldn't believe it. She thinks that woman's trash. I felt bad for Thorpe. I knew it was going to turn out bad for him. But what could I say to him? Your wife's a no-good, straight, piece-of-trash whore? No. Now, old Thorpe, he's not the sharpest tack in the box. He's a good man, so don't get me wrong. He's better than most of the idiots we've got in this company. Still, he should have known better than to get himself hitched to a whore like that one. Gripes. Fooling around on him with a gosh-dang porch ape, son? There were two rows of chemical toilets, one in front of the company area atop the berm that came up to the motor pool, the other in the back atop the berm that went up to the road that took you through the power plant. All told, we had a dozen chemical toilets. Most of the shitting, pissing, and masturbating to be done inside the wire would be done in these. Once a week, this permanently sunburned Russian came around in a special truck and sucked all the shit and piss and jizz and etc. out of the chemical toilets with a big hose, and he sprayed the chemical toilets down with a pressure washer, looking like an old fisherman in a gale. He was a friendly guy, too. He always smiled and gave you the thumbs up if you waved to him. I've often wondered if he was a spy. If you wanted to buy something, you went to the haji shops, little plywood shacks that sold more or less all the shit you needed and some more shit you didn't need. I went and bought a carton of Miamis for $5. It was a good deal at 50 cents a pack, so good it made up for the Miamis tasting like bug spray. I bought three cans of Wild Tiger too, and a box of Metro Bars. Metro Bars were all right. Wild Tiger was fucking great. It was like Red Bull, but with nicotine in it. It was real expensive by Haji shop standards, but it was so good it didn't matter. It was New Year's Day. Happy New Year. I went to the phone tent because the phones were back on and I could call Emily. The phones had been off since Christmas on account of the casualties. There was a line, and I had to wait a while till the phone opened up and I sat down. I'd had the calling card in my hand already for a half an hour, and I put the card number in and put Emily's number in and I got through. How are you? she asked. I'm better now. So much better. Goddamn. The sound of your voice, you know. I miss you. I miss you, too. I've been waiting for you to call. Are you all right? Yeah. How are things? Things are good. Anything new? Nothing, really. I made a new friend. That's good, I said. Who's your new friend? He's interesting, man. He's from Puerto Rico, and he robs ATM machines. You don't say. Yeah, he robs ATM machines, but don't worry, he's really nice. He's a cool guy. Are you fucking with me? What? Nothing. How old is this guy? He's 25. Uh-huh. That's nice. How did you meet him? At a party with some people from work. Great. May I ask you something? Of course. Do you seriously think the 25-year-old Puerto Rican guy who robs ATM machines wants to be your friend? Don't you think it's more realistic that he just wants to fuck you? You there? He's just a nice guy. He's cool. Sweetheart, I love you, but that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard you say. What's your fucking problem, man? Don't you trust me? 
I trust you. It's just that there's no such thing as a nice guy, believe me. I'm as nice as they get, and I'm a total piece of shit. You don't have to worry about me. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about this motherfucker. You don't trust me. I trust you. But you don't. I do. I fucking do. So shut up, and I love you a lot, okay? I love you too. Really, though, I mean, you're it. You know? Like, you're it for me. I feel the same way. Just watch out, okay? Because this guy, I have a feeling he's bad news. It'll be okay. You can trust me. I trust you. That's not it. It's just, I think he might be bad news. Chapter 25 The infantry were fired up and eager to kill. They were impatient to begin killing. They wanted to kill so bad. There was a profligate confidence in our firepower. There was a bullshit camaraderie. But sometimes having all the guns and ammo lying around was a problem. Like when PFC Borges told Corporal Lockhart that Lockhart was a faggot and that Lockhart's wife knew he was a faggot, but she'd married him just to take all his money. Borges was kind of fat and could be a real nasty motherfucker. That and the method got his face. He'd done some pimping before he joined the army. He had liked pimping, but his country needed him. He said his bitches still wrote. Borges had the devil's own luck. Not Lockhart, though. Lockhart was one of those ones to say people took his kindness for weakness. Really, it was just the weakness they took for weakness, though, as it always is. And that night, Lockhart pulled a 12-gauge on Borges, and Borges said, do it, faggot. And Lockhart said he was going to do it, but he didn't. I was riding with Sergeant North and his fire team in the lead Humvee. We were going to an Iraqi army base. They sent us to win the hearts and minds of the IAs there. We didn't know what that meant, but we would see what happened. We arrived at the base without incident and had falafel and zamzam colas with the IAs. The patrol leader went and talked to whomever. He got done and we mounted up to head back to the FOB. It was after curfew. We took a wrong turn somewhere and got lost and ended up on the opposite side of the river from the fob. We could see the fob from where we were, but nobody knew how to get there. We were traveling on a narrow strip of road and we were driving fast without headlights. You did never use headlights. A white sedan came around the bend in the road and North radioed back. The last Humvee turned so as to block the road off and the white sedan didn't try to go around. If it had, it would have been lit up. So, it didn't. North and I left the truck and walked to where the white sedan was. North looked like Morrissey. As far as I know, that was all he had in common with Morrissey. North was a killer, and he was from Idaho. But he looked like Morrissey. I think he was about 23 then. Two Hajis were standing on the road with their legs apart and their arms out, getting frisked. They were both wearing man dresses and sandals. The older of the two of them had thick, strangler wrists and a no-fucking-around mustache. The younger was wiry and clean-shaven, and he had the young Elvis hair like a lot of the Hajis did. Some Joes searched the car. Two Joes covered the Hajis. One Joe was saying that the two Hajis were probably boyfriends, and the other thought that was funny and said the two faggots had no clue how close they'd just come to getting smoked. The patrol leader asked the mustache Haji questions about what he was doing out so late and where he was coming from and where he was going. An interpreter translated. 
The car was clean. The radio said to let the Hajis go on their way. The patrol leader said to the interpreter, Tell them that from now on, they must respect the curfew. It's for their own safety. They could have been hurt out here tonight, and we don't want that to happen. And the interpreter said something. As far as what he said, we'd have to trust him. So that was that. The white sedan went on its way, going south by southeast. We mounted up and continued on, heading north by northwest. And we hadn't been driving a full minute when north said, Stop, stop, stop. There was an EFP on the side of the road. EFPs could cut through anything. The Iranians liked them. But this isn't a big deal. North spotted the EFP and the driver stopped short of the pressure plate. It was close, but close is just another word for nothing. So nothing happened. And we made it back that night. A POG got the first confirmed kill. Personnel other than Grunt. The POG was a cook. She did it with a 50 cal. Foxtrot was bringing a KBR convoy out of Baghdad to set up the DFAC on our FOB. Kellogg, Brown, and Root, dining facility. PFC Livingston was up in the turret of one of the Humvees. Presumably somebody had put her up there as a joke because I don't think she weighed more than a 100 pounds and a 50 cal weighed about a million pounds and it wasn't like the turrets moved so easy either. So... The convoy was ambushed, IED, then small arms fire, but Livingston kept her cool, and maybe she saw the haji in the palm grove before she lit him up. The infantry were sick when they found out about her kill. It was dishonor, a fucking pog, a fucking girl. And she'd have got promoted, but she kept getting caught getting fucked, because she'd get fucked for money, and there was an E6 who'd lose his stripes fucking her in a guard tower the sergeant of the guard. They said he was hitting her in the ass. She was definitely fuckable. She had a nice face. And she was hardcore. One of God's diamonds. Chapter 26 The Big Shia City was well south of the FOB. Getting there meant driving an hour down a four-lane highway called Route Carantan. Traffic was usually heavy on Carantan, but it served to clear the route so that you didn't have to worry too much about pressure plates. There was a point where Carantan crossed the river, and you'd have to cross on a pontoon bridge since the actual bridge had been bombed during the invasion. Bravo Company kept the bridge guard there, and lots of Haji kids hung around in the daytime to beg MREs off the soldiers on the banks of the river. The kids were skinny, shoeless boys, mostly. There was also a little girl you'd see sometimes who might have been seven or eight, or she might have been older, only more malnourished. She had dusty brown hair that was like a bird's nest, and her dress was like something out of the Flintstones. We called her Pebbles. We kept two rifle squads at the Iraqi police station in the city center. But it was whatever. We didn't control the city, neither did the IPs. It was the Mahdi militia who controlled the city. We had a ceasefire with the Mahdi on account of the higher-ups having decided they were too much of a pain in the ass to fight. The Mahdi were Shia, and they were backed by Iran, so we weren't allowed to fuck with the Mahdi, and we weren't allowed to patrol the city. We could drive to the police station and leave the same way we had come in, that was all. The police station was three stories high, with a walled courtyard in front and another in back. There was a jail, and it was packed with prisoners. 
One time the prisoners all sang together and you could hear them outside the jail and it was very beautiful and it made you feel like an asshole. Some of the IPs were all right, some of them were fucks, but that was whatever too. And there was a special Haji SWAT team sort of deal there and the Hajis on the Haji SWAT team thought they were the hottest shit going. They were absolutely fucking delusional, but this was what they thought. They rode around in a shitty compact pickup with a machine gun in the back, and them all piled on top of one another, looking like a lot of goddamn fools. We hated the shit out of them, because they'd got some kicks out of showing us grainy IED videos on a portable DVD player. They'd pointed at the screen and said, You see? Good. You see? You see? Good. Yes? Yes, we were for killing them, and it would have been easy. But... Orders were orders, and we'd been told to endure them for the sake of their hearts and minds, so we did. I was on the roof of the police station on a guard shift, trying to figure out the sniper scope on an M14. This wasn't my job, but I'd got stuck up on the roof with this M14, and I was doing my best. We didn't ever have near as many guys as we were supposed to have. An IP walked up behind me and said, Mr. He offered me a cigarette in Miami. He called me brother. It was a windy day. You had to be careful smoking Miamis on a windy day. One false move and the Miami would turn to ash in a great flash of light. I cupped the cigarette. The Haji cop admired my form. He smiled knowingly and said he wanted to ask me something. I said, all right. He gave me a long wind-up about this crippled wife of his. The leg is very sick, you see. He asked if I had any morphine I could spare. You want me to give you morphine? Aha, you did not know. But you see, I too know things about medicine. I'm sorry, but I have no morphine I can give you. You have the morphine, yes? If I give you morphine, I'll get in trouble. You can give the morphine to me? No. He stopped smiling and he said something in Arabic. Sounded like motherfucker. Going home, the Humvees stopped to wait to cross the pontoon bridge. Sergeant North saw the shoeless Haji kids and Pebbles standing out there, and he got an idea. He opened his door and called to Pebbles. He held out an MRE and waved to her. She hurried towards him, reaching out for the MRE, and North, who incidentally survived the tour without a scratch, pulled the MRE out of her reach just when she got there, and he shut the up-armored door and thought it was funny. On days when it wasn't our turn to go to the police station, we'd get sent out to the middle of fucking nowhere to collect unexploded ordnance. A couple of us would have mine detectors. Sometimes we'd walk in old minefields. It was boring as hell. We were out this way around an old barracks complex. It had been bombed in one of the wars and all the buildings were in ruins. I wandered around. I got to thinking of Emily and I tried to picture what she was doing. I pictured her eating her lunch, probably something with lentils. Then I remembered it wasn't lunchtime where she was. There was an old Air Force bomb lying out on the desert floor. It hadn't exploded whenever it was dropped. It was cracked open and there was green foam that had come out of it. Our people took turns posing with the bomb, having their pictures taken. The lieutenant called it in. The radio came back and said to get away from the bomb, so they all got away from the bomb. That same day, three vans full of explosives went off and killed more than 140 outside the mosque near the police station. First platoon was there when it happened. 
Some of them stood on the roof of the police station and filmed what they could get of it with their digital cameras. I saw the videos they took, and you couldn't really see anything. Our first raid was on an apartment complex north of the Big Shia City. We came up in a wedge formation over a long stretch of open ground looking up at a lot of windows. It had been raining. I thought, this isn't a bad way of drawing fire. All I had was a 9mm pistol and everyone else had a proper gun, and I felt like a fool. I asked the sergeant nearest me, am I supposed to have my weapon drawn? Because, I don't know, seems kind of stupid. Staff Sergeant Green had been an NYPD cop. He'd enlisted after September 11th. They said he killed 15 Hajis in 2003. He was no faker. He said, shut up. So I drew my pistol and I did my best, but I had my mind made up to look into getting a better gun when I got back to the FOB. A lot of bomb-making material was found in the apartment of an IP captain, and he was detained. We also found a few dozen mortar rounds and 155mm shells all around the grounds behind the buildings. 155s were the big ones. You hit an IED with a couple 155s in it, and you were having a bad day. Probably your last bad day. So we gathered up all of those and brought them back with us and rode back to the fob with them rolling around on the floors of the tracks, wondering if we'd suddenly disappear. We went back to the big Shia city for the Ashura. 100,000 pilgrims would be there, at least 100,000. We expected attacks. We were staying at the police station through the week, a whole platoon's worth of us. I was doing a turn on radio guard. It was the middle of the night. Valentine's Day was coming up, and there was a laptop with Internet in the radio room, so I got an idea about ordering Emily some flowers. I had my debit card on me. I asked Staff Sergeant Castro, and he said I could use the computer. Castro was laid back. I went online and found an affordable orchid for $110. It had to be an orchid. Nothing else would do. I couldn't come up with anything good to put on the card. I was tired, I guess. I ended up typing the bouquet of parentheses from Seymour in introduction. I thought she'd know what it was. I signed love and my initials. Staff Sergeant Castro asked me if I was a rich kid. I said not especially, but we never starved or nothing. In the morning, I was in the back courtyard, guarding things as I often was, and it was getting on in the morning because the shit flies were out. The shit flies landed on your lips and walked around, then they went to go get some more shit on their feet. There was shit everywhere, so it was easy enough, and they'd come back and they'd walk around on your lips some more. It got so you only noticed when they weren't around. I heard some shit like yelling, and two IPs crashed through a door into the courtyard. They were wrestling over a 9mm Glock. Both of the IPs were wearing plain clothes. They looked like 1970s TV detectives with their slacks and their mustaches and their leather jackets. I knew the gun was loaded. People don't usually wrestle over unloaded guns. And it was a Glock, so there was no safety switch on it. I didn't know if I was supposed to shoot them, so I just stood there. Some more Haji cops ran out and they pulled the two apart and one of them got run off and somebody threw a shoe. The pilgrims came out under a white sky. The imam had been martyred where the big mosque was, and that had been 1,000 years ago, and the mosque was named for him. That's what the intelligence officer had said. The minaret broadcast verses, and a great slow drum sounded, and the men struck themselves with knives in unison. 
I was standing on top of the barricade and I saw all this. A sea of black, dust clouds rising into the air and disappearing. Nothing changed in one thousand years. And now, when I try to remember the way the verses went, the way the drum went, I can't get all the way back there. I'm forever outside of it. I know how it was, how it looked, but I can't see it. I didn't have a camera. I didn't believe in taking a camera out with me. I suppose I thought if the Hodge ever took me alive, I wouldn't want him filming me with my own camera when I got my head sawed off. Some IPs came back and showed me their cuts from where they'd been cutting their own heads. The cuts were unimpressive. It was like they almost really had and then hadn't. On the last night of the Ashura, a haji tried to sneak over the wall behind the police station, and Sergeant Bautista shot him in the ass with a star cluster flare. I was there, too. The haji got away. We could have shot him a lot more, and with real bullets, and nobody would have given us a hard time about it, but we were fakers, so we didn't. At the bridge on the way back, I gave Pebbles an MRE. She held it tight against her chest and ran off with it. But one of the shoeless boys caught her and punched her in the head and took the MRE away from her. She was sitting in the dust when we drove away. Chapter 27 We didn't get much in the way of prior notice. Then the sergeants were at us going, Get your shit! Chop, chop, dolly, dolly! So on and so forth. PFC Borges was huffing computer duster with his battle buddy specialist Roach when Staff Sergeant Castro came banging on the door. Borges went to get it, but he 